All right, I do believe we're live. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Break the Rules live stream. I am your host, Lev Polyakov. Today, we are back with Jason, Dr. Jason, Riza Giorgiani, PhD, Neil, Gnostic Informant. We are here to talk about the recent UFO revelations. We're just going to go right down into it. But as always, make sure to smash that like button, smash that subscribe button, and be sure to send the Super Chats because we are going to be doing Q&A with the Super Chats after the conversation uh, itself. So without further ado, I will give you Jason Giorgiani, and we're going to start out talking about this uh, this Gorsh uh, character and uh, what exactly these revelations are from this Intel whistleblower. We're going to get right into it. Jason, thank you very much for being here, and, uh, and away we go. So let us switch to the great Jason Riza Giorgiani. Here we are. Well, it's always great to be with you, Lev. And uh, I'm also very glad that Neil could make it here with us this evening. Um, so listen, I watched this live broadcast last night, this much anticipated uh, live broadcast of um, uh, the interview with David Grush. And um, parts of this had been released by News Nation in the preceding week following an article in the debrief by Leslie Keen and um, Ralph Blumenthal. Uh, and then it was anticipated that, uh, well, not the full interview, but one hour from out of seven hours that David Grush recorded with Ross Colhart would be released. And it was last night. Interestingly enough, after the live broadcast, it was uploaded to YouTube and was only up there for a few hours before being taken down. And my guess is that certain uh, factions within the government pressured YouTube to basically uh, lamely appeal to parts of the community standards to get News Nation to make this video private. So now you can only find it on their website. Um, but let me back up and... and um, start with the article in the debrief uh, from about, I don't know, what was it now, five days ago or something like that, five or six days ago, um, because, because that's a really significant part of this story. So before we got any of the video footage of this interview with uh, whistleblower David Grush, Leslie Keen and Ralph Blumenthal published this piece about his allegations in the debrief. Now, these are the two authors of the New York Times article from 2000 and what was it, 17 originally, I believe, um, revealing the ATIP program, the, the advanced uh, you know, threat identification program at the Pentagon that had been studying UFOs in the 2000s. And then, you know, these series of several of these videos were released, the gun camera footage of the Tic Tac and, uh, you know, Fast Mover and other objects and so forth. And so between 2017 and 2020, Leslie Keen and, and Blumenthal were leading sort of the mainstream media disclosure of these uh, formerly classified Pentagon programs. Now, interestingly, Okay, why, why are these the two authors on this piece? And then why is it being published in the debrief? Well, they approached the New York Times with Grush's story. And both Leslie Keen and Ralph Blumenthal and also Ross Coolhart, who is the person who interviewed Grush for seven hours, over the course of, I don't know, like a year, 
exhaustively corroborated his story. They did deep investigative journalism to nail down, you know, um, that he is who he says he is, and he had access to, to the kind of programs that he said he did. Uh, and they, they were able to secure statements from very high-level military officials in support of Grush and also to um, look at some of the documentation including a complaint he filed to the Inspector General of Intelligence, uh, where basically he's complaining about retaliation from the government for the inquiries that he's been making. And the Inspector General of Intelligence came back and said that his complaint was both uh, uh, credible and urgent. So they looked at all this documentation, okay, and they put this in front of the New York Times and the Washington Post, and Politico, and a bunch of other mainstream news sources who refused to run the story, okay? So this by itself is a very important piece of information because anyone who knows anything about journalism and intelligence knows that about 10% of all the journalists or media correspondents who work for these major newspapers and, and TV outlets are agents of the CIA. The CIA has a contingent of approximately 10% inside all of these mainstream media agencies. And now and then they, you know, exercise their capacity to suppress a story. They certainly did that in this case. So right off the bat, that tells you that at least significant factions of the government, intelligence community and so forth, don't want this story coming out. Uh, and then that was only corroborated by the fact that the YouTube video was only allowed to be up there for a few hours okay, be, before being taken down. So, so the, you have this article in the debrief that was the spearhead, and then coverage by News Nation, which is a relatively small media outlet. Uh, their most prominent correspondent is Chris Cuomo, who, after you know be, being forced out of CNN, uh, went to work for them and, and helped the startup. So they're not totally obscure, but they're relatively new news agency, and they're the ones who gave Russ Colhart a platform to do this stunning interview with David Grush. Did you well, want to? Yeah, I mean, there are so many questions to be asked. Uh, I want to see how exactly this relates to the picture you've had already of what's been going on with the UFOs in American governments and the correspondences that we've had with, uh, as you uh, talk about, these uh, various uh, different kinds of factions here. Yes. So uh, let me know uh, what exactly you think is going on. Well, let's take it from the top. So first of all, who is this guy, David Grush? I'm going to try to condense yeah. all of the salient points of this interview um, for those mostly who haven't seen it, you know, and who are listening to this, and then maybe we'll go and watch it afterwards. But in any case, a cliff's notes to this interview, okay? Uh, Grush is, as he describes himself, a blue-collar uh, background uh, denizen of Pittsburgh. He's, he's from uh, a blue-collar family in Pittsburgh. Uh, says that, you know, he, he basically didn't have enough money to pay for college and wound up um, getting a scholarship for physics, right, to go to, to, to college. So he has a physics background. And this is very important because we're not just talking about a guy who ultimately joins the Air Force, spends 14 years in the Air Force, particularly in Air Force intelligence, and achieves the rank of captain. Okay, works on many classified missions, but someone who also has a physics background. And so when you hear him talk about these 
uh, you know, unidentified aerial phenomena, whatever, these UAPs, UFOs, he, is, he has some insights in terms of hyperdimensional physics and how these objects might not necessarily be coming from another solar system or elsewhere in the galaxy. They may actually be slipping into our space-time from uh, other dimensions or from, you could say, a, a hyperdimensional domain. Okay, so we'll come back to that later. But point being, very smart guy, background in physics, on top of being uh, a veteran Air Force officer. And Grush ultimately became such a prominent member of the intelligence community that he was preparing the daily intelligence briefing for the president of the United States. So this is the guy who would put together the president's daily briefing. Okay, and he had access to hundreds of classified programs. I think the actual number was somewhere around 2,000 wow. different special access programs and so on and so forth. And he worked with the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, which you know up to recently was a very little known agency. Most people who were requesting information about UFOs through the Freedom of Information Act, you know, filing FOIA requests for government information about UFOs, were trying to get it out of, I don't know, the Air Force or the CIA or whatever, and didn't realize until recently that this agency, the, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, actually has the majority of data on UFOs, at least from recent years. And so Grush worked with them and became their representative in the UAP task force. He was kind of like, he was one of four members on the UAP task force at the Pentagon, and he was sort of a representative uh, of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency on that body. And as part of his work for the UAP task force, it was his duty to find out what other parts of the government knew about this phenomenon. You know, Congress passed legislation basically demanding that this was right around 2021, basically demanding that any branch. Uh Oh, what's going on? There we go. Task force. Oh, Jason, can you please repeat the part from uh, uh, the branch because you were cut off right now? So go for it. Yeah. So in 2021, there was legislation passed where basically Congress demanded that every branch of the government report to the UAP task force, whatever data they have on this phenomenon. Okay. And so Grush had congressional authorization to basically go find out who knows what about this stuff, right? And then, of course, there have been, you know, reports throughout the years that there are programs that have been retrieving crashed saucers, like at Roswell, for example, and trying to reverse engineer this stuff. And so Grush went after this. And he, like I said, he had very high level of clearance. And so he was able to discover a variety of programs to which he was denied access. And you know, it was actually his colleagues in the intelligence community who one after another high level colleagues of his came to him and basically confessed the existence of this or that program by name and to, to the extent that he was uh, made aware of the location of the facilities where various uh, you know, crash retrieved objects were being held, uh, facilities where research and development on reverse engineering of them was taking place. And so he was able to basically put together 
this entire dossier of names and you know individuals' names, program names, and locations of facilities relevant to these special access projects to which he was denied access, which is illegal because Congress authorized the UAP task force to have access to all information held by any branch of the government relevant to UAPs. So, and then as he's involved in this process, he starts to get intimidated. He gets, starts to be threatened by other branches of the government, starts to face retaliation. And so, as I mentioned earlier, he basically issued a complaint going through you know, the protocol that exists for that. He issued a complaint to the Inspector General of Intelligence, United States Inspector General of Intelligence. And here's the real crazy thing. The Inspector General's office comes back and says, the report is credible and urgent. And this is on record. This document exists. The journalists who covered the story have seen this document. And Grush goes on to give 11 hours of testimony sworn under oath to the Senate Intelligence Committee and the House Intelligence Committee. So he handed over everything he knows. He can't hand it over to the public because it's classified information. And he's not a traitor to the United States. Okay, but under oath, he gave sworn testimony on penalty of perjury to the House and the Senate Intelligence Committees with all of the individuals names, all of the project names and all of the locations where these craft are being held. Wow, that is amazing this is where we're at. So Congress now has this information. OK. And uh, so, OK, I mean, th th that's basically Grush's background. Um, now, I mean, if you want what we, what we can get into, which is a real meat of this, is what are the claims that he's making about, you know, these programs and what it is that the deep state of the United States knows? That's what I was going to ask. Mm -hmm. And I would also want to ask, uh, in line with that, how many of these reflect a lot of the things that uh, you were talking about in your book, Closer Encounters, when it comes to these various relationships that we have alleged to have with the uh, uh, remnants of the uh, Third Reich after World War II. But I'm sure we're going to get into uh, all of that as well as we uh, go. So uh, let me know. Right. Um, I mean, I'll come, I'll come back a little later to addressing that more directly except that one of the interesting things that he revealed was that the first crash retrieval was from fascist Italy. So a lot of people think that Roswell was the first uh, crash retrieval. But, and by the way, Grush talks about Roswell in this interview with Colhart. And interestingly, uh, this is another important element in terms of the background of this story. When Coulthard put, presses him on Roswell, Grush cannot answer. He says, yes, it was a legitimate crash retrieval. It happened. But he can't get into any details of that. And this happens at a number of points in this interview. And I imagine that if you listen to the entire seven-hour uh, you know, recording, you would see that it happened many more times. Because Grush actually got clearance to come out and say the things that he has, which is interesting. And we'll get into that, too. Like, what is going on here that one part of the government is intimidating this guy, one part of the government through media is trying to suppress this story, and yet some other part of the government has not only uh, favorably reviewed his complaint, they've authorized him to say certain things, and they've forbidden him from saying other things. That's okay, so he couldn't get into Roswell in detail, but he did volunteer that Roswell was not the first crash retrieval. The first was Magenta, Italy. 
1933, and Benito Mussolini ordered wow. the retrieval. So it's the fascists who have this technology first. And they had it all the way from 1933 until the fall of the Third Reich, at which point we went in and, according to Grush, we seized the technology. And, it, and he says that it was the Pope, Pope Pius, at the Vatican, who informed the Americans about the location of this uh, vehicle, and which means the Vatican knows. The Vatican has known about this since 19, well, the 30s at least, okay? Um, that by itself is a huge story, okay, that the Vatican has been sitting on knowledge of UFOs since the 1930s. Anyway, uh, that, that's the fascist angle for the time yeah. being. I'll leave it at that. It makes you wonder why why Mussolini was so intent on conquering Greece and Egypt and Africa, all the Roman areas. Why does he want it? What's what's he trying to find? Yeah, and you know the um, the high level technical cooperation between Nazi Germany and fascist Italy starts to make a lot more sense. I mean, I discussed this at length in Closer Encounters. You know, at length, I get into the technical team that was working in Prague on this zero point energy technology in the early 1940s and how this team actually included this guy Beluzzo, an Italian, as part of a team that was predominantly German. In any case, it shed some light on the Italian angle and their involvement in the uh, zero point energy project in Prague in the early 1940s, which then, as we'll discuss later on, was transplanted to the United States and continued at companies like Martin Aircraft in the 1950s uh, in the U.S. military-industrial complex. Book link in the description, by the way, for those who want to get closer encounters, that's where you got to go. So what is Grush alleging? Grush is alleging that uh, metallurgical and isotopic ratio analyses of craft that have been retrieved going back 80 years, suggest that these have been engineered by what he, I think, somewhat problematically calls non-human intelligence. And we'll come back to that question, okay? But in other words, um, no conventional government or uh, you know, recognized population or, or their scientific community has engineered these things, okay? And, and we know this because the isotopes in these metals and the, de and the degree of complexity of the metallurgy involved in crafting these vehicles exceeds uh, the scientific and technical knowledge of um, certainly any of the, the nations, you know, in the era when these objects started to be retrieved. That's one of the things that Rush is claiming. And he's also claiming that... Uh, that these objects posed a significant security threat in terms of the standoff between the United States and Soviet Union during the Cold War. That basically these reports like, you know, uh, Malmstrom Air Force Base 1967, where 10 of our ICBMs were uh, shut off, uh, the launch capacity for 10 of our ICBMs were shut off by UFO, um, and similar incidents where uh, a whole sorties of UFOs appeared over the Soviet Union in sensitive areas. 
these incidents almost triggered a nuclear war because we thought the Soviets were targeting us and the Soviets thought that we were targeting them and it could have all ended very badly. So, you know, there was this agreement in 1971 between the Soviet Union and the United States, which, which Grush points to, in particular, he points to Article 3 of this treaty in 1971 between the U.S. and USSR, uh, that's basically implying that the two countries have to maintain close communications, you know, the red phone, the emergency red phone that was on the desk in the White House, because these objects could be misidentified as an attack by one side on the other side. And so they needed to wow. keep each other informed of the UFO danger so that they didn't stumble into a nuclear war accidentally. All right. That's the left. Now, that just that by itself is staggering if you really think about it. OK, well, let me ask you something real quick. Because you get a, you get a lot of these people that are in the military, not even in high levels, but but like you know, sometimes higher levels, but not even just high levels. Even just normal people will say, you know, when we're up in the sky in our jets, we see things all the time. We just don't even know what they are. We're so used to it now; it's no big deal. And you hear that, and you're like, wait, what? You're like, yeah, it could be Russia, it could be China. We don't know what it is. We're just these, these weird like dots over here, a weird 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 disfiguration over here, and like what? Why is it just seems like how come no one even cares about that? It seems like something that you think people would be talking about. You would think, I mean, but and, you know, the degree of complacency on the part of the general public is really appalling. Uh, Hopefully. This testimony from Grush will will, uh, you know, start to uh, move some people out of their comfort zone. And, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, flip the light bulb on in a, a little larger percentage of the population. But does Grush give any details on what it looks like, what we're to- what we're dealing with, anything like that at all? You know, this is this has been discussed by many other people in the past. Um, he doesn't in that one hour that's been aired, he doesn't get into that much detail, except to say that uh, some of the craft were football field sized okay so these were everything from the tic tac which is relatively small to football field sized craft which he says there are people who who apprised him of this information people who were his sources who are ready to come forward under the right conditions if congress treats this matter properly and if the media handles uh grush's disclosures properly individuals are ready to come forward who have had personal interaction with craft the size of football fields, okay? And um, so it's a whole wide range of uh, vehicles that have been recovered, either intact or partially damaged, and that are being reverse engineered. And in terms of reverse engineering, this is the interesting thing that he says, that while some advancements have been made on basically, um, you know, appropriating this technology due to what they call stovepiping, meaning scientists being forced to work in isolation and excessive compartmentalization, advancement on understanding this, uh, this engineering and this type of material hasn't been made at the rate that it could be if it were uh, you know, an open scientific problem, right? And he suggests that in particular, there's one defense contractor, and I know which defense contractor this is, who tried to 
open this up a little bit and recruit a larger pool of scientists to come and study this. And the Pentagon immediately shut them down. I mean, not shut down the uh, defense contractor, but they basically told them, oh, no, you're not going to. Oh, no, you're not. So, uh, so clearly, the Pentagon is still in control on some level. You know, it's been speculated that since the 1970s, a lot of these programs were moved from the Pentagon, meaning the U.S. government, into private corporations. And from Russia's testimony, it appears that while you know a lot of defense contracting is being is taking place, the final say is still from the Pentagon. So yeah. So and by the way, the company that I think you know tried to do that was Lockheed. And hmm. the reason I say that is because. And when did they try to do that? Now this is a little bit staggering. Lockheed used to be Lockheed Martin. That was a uh, conglomerate of two corporations, one of which was Martin Aircraft. And if you look in the 1950s, throughout the press, mainstream newspapers are covering statements from aerospace executives, including Martin Aircraft, saying that they are months away from cracking anti-gravity technology, actually, that they've already cracked it, and that they're months away from rolling anti-gravity craft off the assembly line. Amazing. Okay? So this was 1954. 1954. Sorry, I'm getting, I'm getting oh. texts from one of my associates in intelligence. <laughs> Shut my phone off. Anyway. Shout out to the intelligence man. What's up? Good he to says, see you. Yes, yes, definitely Lockheed. Anyway, so, so look, uh, 1954. Can you, I mean, wrap your mind around that. Like what kind of advancement has taken place in the deep state over the last 70 years? Right. Almost, right. Yeah. Actually, this is one of my problems with Grush's claims is the extent to which he's claiming that, you know, real breakthroughs haven't taken place and stovepiping is a problem for R&D and so on and so forth. Well, you know, that's probably true on some level, right? I mean, obviously, open scientific research is going to lead to greater rate of, uh, you know, insight and innovation than if you've got a bunch of people highly compartmentalized. And you don't have the best scientists working on this problem. Like, for example, Eric Weinstein, he's been very angry that he hasn't been read into these programs because he has the requisite physics knowledge to probably you know, make significant breakthroughs and reverse engineering a lot of this stuff. And so the best scientists are not the ones working on these programs. The scientists who can be trusted to keep their mouths shut and right. be compliant are the ones working on these programs. I was just going right? to say, they're going to let some guy who's on Joe Rogan every other week get in, involved in this stuff. You're out of your mind, you know? Exactly, exactly. Yes, yeah. looks, I'm sorry, I, I, I like the guy. But he's got the wrong personality profile. He's got the. Anyway, let's just leave it at that. Yeah. So, so yeah, I get it. Like what Grush is saying about compartmentalization. At the same time, I'm not sure that Grush's sources have been entirely honest with him about what degree of advancement has taken place. And this is a question that we can come back to when I want to speculate about the wider context for Grush's disclosures and what it represents in terms of the factionalization of the deep state okay uh, definitely that that's the one that i'm after that's the question right there but first very quick dust bunny dx it's not a super chat but i had to say this uh says i feel sorry for the alien pilots trying to park their football-sized craft 
So there we go. Although they probably figured certain ways of doing that out. But also what you were talking about with the... Let me, let me interject. Yeah. Yeah, let me okay, okay. Springboard. Um, I don't feel sorry for them. And, and this is, this is uh, I think, the most important thing that came from out of Grush's testimony. I don't feel sorry for the alien pilots because uh, a lot of them are really bad news for humanity. And this, this, to me, was one of the most impressive aspects of the interview, at least you know, the portions of it that were aired with David Grush, where he came out and admitted that... As he put it, and it was very well worded. He said, if you look at it from a humanistic perspective, the behavior of a lot of these entities is negative or downright malevolent. And he can, yeah, he confessed that the U.S. military has had to confront these entities in a hostile fashion on a number of occasions because they are engaged in activities that are uh, threatening to humanity, okay? And that are um, unethical and immoral. Now, what the hell is he talking about? Well, I'll tell you what he's talking about. <laughs> and this is probably the parts of the seven hours that Russ Coolhart did not want to air through News Nation because he doesn't want to terrify the crap out of everybody who's trying to process what this guy is saying for the first time, right? I mean, I devote a couple of chapters to this in Closer Encounters. In Brazil, in the 1970s, you had these entities, entities, why, why call them entities? Tall, blonde people, tall, blondes, tall, redheaded people, Nordic-looking people in UFOs come from out of the Amazon River Basin and descend on these poor Brazilians living in, in, in the towns in the jungle and absolutely terrorize them. Not only terrorize them, maim them. A lot of them were burned. Some of them were tortured. And medical doctors were called in from large cities into this area. Researchers from abroad were called into this area. One of the most prominent ufologists who at that time studied this was Jacques Vallée. Interestingly and oddly enough, Vallée doesn't like to talk about this particular series of incidents lately. I don't know what's up with that, but he did write an entire foreword to uh, a book about this subject called UFO Danger Zone. And the, the foreword is by Jacques Vallée, all about what happened in the Amazon basin in the 1970s. So he had these Nordics just torturing the local population. No regard, no regard for them as human beings, right? Um, and in fact, there were even cases of human mutilation which looked a lot like the cattle mutilations. So, you know, that's another whole subject, right? In the 1970s, uh, I mean, it goes way back. It goes yeah. actually into the late 19th century, even to the 1890s and all throughout the 20th century. But there was a huge spike in the 1970s of these cattle mutilations. Uh, it was so bad that the FBI was called in to investigate because it crossed state lines. I was going to say, this, is, this, is, this was happening all over the world, not just in the, in the U.S., right? Or was this in the U.S.? No, all over in my, Cattle ranching countries. Yeah, yeah, that's my Argentina, uh, Britain. So it, can't, yeah, it can't just be like one coordinated thing happening in one region. This is if it's happening all over the world. This what the yes. hell is going and, on? Like, I right? think, and I'm going to get to Stephen Greer in a in a while too. Yeah. Because Stephen Greer 
his, he and his disclosure project, they had uh, about two and a half hours of testimony at the National Press Club today. So that was another incident that's taken place, another event that has transpired together with this Grush disclosure, which is worthy of comment. Um, so, so I'll get to him momentarily. But if, like Stephen Greer, you preposterously allege that all the malevolent activity associated with UFOs is actually shit staged by the U.S. government, um, you're hard pressed to explain why mutilated cattle were dropped off inside the defense perimeter of NORAD in the 1970s. Okay, so whoever was carrying out these mutilations also wanted to terrorize the United States government, and they actually dropped mutilated carcasses inside the defense perimeter at NORAD. Well, it also sounds like they have kind of a, a sick sense of humor, if you will. These don't seem to be entities that are so cold and without a uh, sense of humor, even if it is a bad one, which does make me think differently than the traditional image that we've had of aliens being so advanced and so godlike that we wouldn't be able to have any exchange of uh, humor or comedy with them. I don't know, would you say, and then this may be getting a little bit into the weeds, but it's an interesting question. When we're talking about these meetings of U.S. government officials with these uh, so-called aliens, is the vibe such that they are so much above us that we are to them like animals, or is it a matter of maybe some government official being able to be, you know, wittier than they are, and they kind of respect them, and there's kind of a socialization that's able to happen? The latter. And, and this even came across to some extent in Grush's testimony, because what he said was that, there, now, now, this is one of the points that he really didn't want to discuss, and you can see he gets very uncomfortable when Ross Coolhart starts to press him on this. But he basically admits that there have been agreements made between the, um, let, let's say, the entities, okay? Because, again, this non-human intelligence term that he uses is deeply problematic. But the entities and the U.S. government have made various agreements. And this was one of the reasons that Grush decided to come forward, because as he put it in one of the complaints that he filed, these are, quote, agreements that risk putting our future in jeopardy, unquote. And he also implied that not all of these craft were shot down. Some of them were voluntarily surrendered by the entities. So there's a transfer of technology that's taking place on some level. And then you have to ask yourself, okay, well, if they're volunteering this technology, what is it we're giving them in exchange? And then you have to think of the whole abduction phenomenon, right? I mean, if the United States government, clearly since the 1950s, has known that thousands of its citizens are being abducted. I mean, that's, a, that's actually an understatement. There have been studies, there have been polls taken and studies that have, that have shown that it's something like it's something like 2% of the population that's been affected by this phenomenon in one or another way. And there's a very large number of abductees um, who, who basically have suppressed memories of him being involved in this phenomenon. In any case. I just looked this up. The yeah. Encyclopedia of Worldwide, not American, Worldwide Problems and Human Potential says that between 1960 and 1986, reported worldwide not just in the U.S., once again, I'm emphasizing that, 
20,000 incidents of unexplained mutilation of livestock between 1960 and 1986. Well, there you have it. Okay. Uh, that's a serious problem. So what have we been giving them in exchange for technology? Well, uh, card blanche to go mutilate cattle, which represents the destruction of millions of dollars worth of property of these cattle ranchers. Much worse than that, We've looked the other way while they've abducted people's children from out of their homes in the middle of the night and experimented on them unethically, right? So, I mean, it, this is really a terrifying prospect. And you can see that Rush knows this from how uncomfortable he is when the subject comes up in the interview uh, of us, uh, basically of people in the U.S. government having made deals with the entities in exchange for, you know, them volunteering some technology. Uh, and by the way, let me make a note while I'm on this subject. People often make this relatively idiotic remark, like if they're coming from some other star system and they're interstellar, like how come they crash all the time and whatever? Like, how does this make any? Well, first of all, first. They're suppressing him. We are going to get him back. These things happen. Everybody, by the way, be sure to strike that like button right now. There we go. Jason, you are back. There was a pause. They're trying to shut you down, but they're not going to be successful on Break the Rules. So uh, let's uh, let's keep going here. Where was I at when it cut off? So uh, you were talking about how uh, uh, these uh, entities want to have our children and well, how no, they're been Why do they crash? Why do and they then, crash? Yeah, and then why they crash. Oh, you got that part. Okay. Yeah. A lot of these haven't crashed. They've been brought down with scalar weaponry. Uh, Nikola Tesla designed a device that is capable of basically, I mean, th this is not the purpose for which it was designed, but it can be adapted to interfere with the control system of a UFO. And uh, the United States has had this technology since the, well, since, since they raided, uh, you know, Tesla's hotel room and took all of his papers and so forth, um, which was the mid-1940s. They've had this technology, and I suspect that it's with this kind of weaponry that they brought down the craft near Roswell Army Air Base. Um, so, so a lot of them have been brought down. And then some of them have been just, you know, volunteered by the entities in exchange for uh, who knows what horrendously unethical things that we're allowing them to do. And this is one of the concerns that Grush had and one of the reasons that he's come forward, which, of course, brings us to the whole question of criminality and the violations of the United States Constitution that have taken place here. I mean, this was one of the most incendiary parts of the interview with Ross Coldhart, where basically Grush... Uh, unequivocally states that not only have people's lives been wrecked, their careers been destroyed, but people have been murdered to keep these operations secret. That the uh, budget for maintaining the secrecy and security around these programs exceeds the budget for the programs themselves. And these security operations have involved even murder of people who could potentially uh, you know, expose these operations, which isn't to say that there haven't been leaks throughout the years. Another idiotic, you know, objection made by some people as well. How come this is the first whistleblower? Like how, you know, shit leaks from out of the government all the time. How come there haven't been leaks before? There have been leaks. There have been leaks going back to Admiral Roscoe Hillenquarter, who was the first director of the CIA, came out in the 1960s and testified about this stuff. Uh, 
Colonel Philip Corso in the 1990s came out with his testimony of having been um, involved in the, in the, often, uh, the Office of Foreign uh, Technology, reverse engineering all kinds of technology from crashed saucers, uh, Velcro, night vision, uh, semiconductors, and so on and so forth. He gave extensive testimony in the 1990s about having been involved with this project. And then, of course, you had Bob Lazar. You know, now we know Bob Lazar was telling the truth. Bob Lazar, who was taken into these facilities and who was shown these craft that they have and that they're trying to reverse engineer and craft that they have engineered based on technical knowledge obtained from studying these retrieved vehicles. So there have been people leaking this all through the years. But as Grush says, there has been a massive disinformation campaign to mislead the American people and to muddy the waters around the leaks that have taken place, okay, so that they can't uh, really impact the public discourse in an enlightening way. And so that's, I think, an important part of his testimony. And what that means is that, okay, clearly Grush is getting his information from high-level sources inside some of these programs. That's who's giving him this information. And why would that be the case? Why would that be the case? Well, I believe it's because the individuals who have uh, basically given Grush the information he needed to give 11 hours of testimony under oath to the Senate Intelligence Committee, these individuals want immunity from prosecution. For whatever reason, and I can speculate, I can speculate on what the reason is, uh, for whatever reason, they have decided that they want out and they want immunity from prosecution to reveal what they know from having been inside these programs because they understand full well that those who are directing these programs have committed treason against the United States. And in some cases, they're guilty not just of murder, but probably of what could be prosecuted at the Hague Tribunal under the, under the rubric of crimes against humanity, including violation of, of national sovereignty of other countries and abuse of citizens of other countries and so on and so forth. There is uh, one problem here, though, which is uh, what we were talking about uh, back then. We had the uh, wonderful uh, dinner, which I really thank you uh, for. Uh, we were talking about how if there was an ability that somebody had to do something that would be shown to be extremely extraordinary, that the people who would see that would all of a sudden have a different uh, view of reality, that person would not be allowed to go in front of those people way 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 back before they would have been evil uh you know been on the train or something to go to times square and fly around it the reason why i'm mentioning this is would you say that these entities are so strong in terms of mental ability in terms of being able to change the course of history that they would be able to prevent people like the whistleblowers that are coming out right now from doing anything of significance or would you say that that is not the case that these whistleblowers would be able to do something to uh change whatever these entities want to be done okay so this takes us into um this takes us into the context for Grush's disclosure and the various factions within the deep state. 
right? Yeah. Because, look, obviously the secrecy around UFOs is ultimately secrecy from the side of the phenomenon, right? I mean, you, you know, just think for a minute. Obviously, the U.S. government can't keep anything about UFOs secret if the UFOs themselves decide to fly over Times Square or over the, you know, or land on the Trocadero across from the, you know, Eiffel Tower in Paris or whatever, right? Yeah. So the, the cards are in their hands. If they want to disclose themselves, they can disclose themselves tomorrow, right? So clearly, this means that ultimately the secrecy is from the side of the phenomena, which then raises the question. How are the various factions in the deep state situated with respect to the entities and the timetable and agenda which the entities have for disclosing themselves? That's the real question here. And to go into a brief discussion of Stephen Greer and his own press conference today, National Press Club event mm -hmm. today, what has me deeply concerned about Stephen Greer is that he makes this preposterous claim and he repeated it. I, I watched today that press conference for about two and a half hours. And I think he made this claim just in that press conference. He made this claim about four times that all of these extraterrestrials, as he likes to call them, again, problematic, as Rush pointed out, all of these extraterrestrials are benevolent. Not a single type of extraterrestrial visiting us is hostile. And all the abductions, the mutilations, and other abuse of humans that seems to be associated with this phenomenon is actually the activity of the United States government. And, you know, the, the military has these my labs and military labs, and they have all this equipment that allows them to disguise themselves as aliens. They even have like little gray robots, I guess, that they've been able to, you know, manufacture at Raytheon Corporation. And this is what's behind all the abuse of humans. This is preposterous, okay? There are abduction accounts going back thousands of years. There are abduction accounts in medieval fairy folklore. I mean, Jacques Vallée wrote a whole book on this, Passport to Magonia, which compares the fairy faith to contemporary abductions and shows that it's the same phenomenon. Uh, going back into ancient times, the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, but also, you know, the life and times of Jesus Christ, who rides around in a UFO as if it's a taxi. Um, the Bible is full of close encounters. Or, just, or the Quran, the Prophet Muhammad. Yeah, Prophet Muhammad had the Quran revealed to him together in the context of a UFO sighting, together with he the flew, UFO sighting. Don't forget, he flew up on a Pegasus up to the moon. What do you think that, what do you think is going on in that story, right? The way that Muhammad was taken from Mecca to Jerusalem and back has all the hallmarks of spatiotemporal distortion uh, that are also evident in contemporary close encounter reports. So, but to, you know, the Bible is just full of UFO encounters. Ezekiel. Um, yeah, but beginning with Moses, I mean, the, the pillar that guides mm -hmm. the Israelites through the desert is clearly a cylindrical UFO. And the God inside this object who dictates the commandments Whoa. is clearly one of these Nordic, you know, UFO pilots. And they, they die of, uh, what do they say they die of? Would they go close to it? Yeah, they will have radiation poisoning. Radiation, yeah, yeah. In the Bible, yeah. 
or, and, or something like the manna, for instance, that the uh, Hebrews eat, some weird transparent uh, glob, you know, that tastes like whatever they want it to taste food. like? Space food. That's been described in a lot of contemporary UFO encounters. It's an ionization effect. The stuff flakes down from UFOs. And it's exactly the kind of stuff described as manna in the Bible. In any case, the siege of Jericho was coordinated by these objects. Ezekiel sees like, you know, more than 10 of these objects. It's all through the Old Testament. It's also in the Mahabharata uh, and the Vedas. Uh, you have accounts of nuclear war, nuclear war on Earth between different factions of these entities riding around in what they call vimanas, which is their name for these aerial objects. And whole cities are destroyed. And by the way, we have, uh, we have archaeological evidence for this. At Mohenjo-Daro and Harappa, there is vitrified uh, brick and stone. Vitrified brick and stone, meaning that the place was basically subjected to the kind of heat you find at a nuclear test site. Mm. Well, one uh, one quick question about that, though, as a side, there are many people right now talking about the pole shift of the earth and how we've experienced uh, during these ancient times this insane uh, storm caused from the sun, the visual of which resembles the uh, uh, the uh, uh, weapon of uh, Zeus and Indra, the uh, thunderbolt. So the question there is. Are these just descriptions for aerial phenomena that were caused by the sun, or are these also descriptions Absolutely of weapons that the aliens not. wielded? There are go look at the Vimana Shastras. There are entire Sanskrit texts that describe the engineering of these objects and that describe that they have mercury and thorium inside them that make them go. And so there, There's detailed descriptions of these objects and of the way they were used by various gods, by various devas, and Asuras in combat. And sometimes like the devas or Asuras will give a human king access to this technology so that the human can, you know, help defend against their adversary. Yeah. It's all this business about sharing technology with humans or with hybrid humans is all there in the ancient texts. And then when you mention hybrid humans in Greek mythology, we have, of course, the story of Atlantis. And it's made very clear by Plato in his account of Atlantis in, in uh, Critias that the Atlanteans were hybrids. They were hybrids between these entities and terrestrial humans. Uh, and ultimately, they rebelled against the entire control system run by these entities. Uh, and so that was the context for the global flood, which you have, you know, in the Bible, paralleled in the Bible as the flood of Noah. And of course, you know, in the Bible, look at Genesis 6, the reason given for the flood of Noah was that the fallen angels had hybridized with humans and they'd spawn a rebellious race on the earth that defied the Elohim, the gods led by Yahweh. And when Homer, when Homer talks about the ancient Crete, because we know the Minoans go back far, like we, we're talking like yeah. seven, Nassos is dated to 7,000 BCE now. Well, he says they had 90 cities on this island that all surrounded in this palace of Nassos. And he separates the indigenous Cretans. He calls them indigenous Cretans. That's the translation in Greek from, the, from Greek to English. The indigenous Cretans. And then there's uh, Pelasgians and then Dorians. And Dorians means the people of the gift. And, and Doro, Doron means gift in Greek. So what is he talking about? People of the gift that live. And he's, he, he describes them as they're not native to Crete, but they were there and they built this giant palace. Who are these people? Pelasgians too surviving Atlanteans who went all over the world. 
in any case, let's not get derailed uh, yeah, too yeah. much from what I, where I was trying to go. But my point is simply this. It's that if you look back at these ancient texts, going back to the Sumerian accounts of how the Anunnaki ruled the earth and the battle between Enki, who wanted to help humans and enlighten them, a Promethean figure, Prometheus, right. versus Enlil, who's the Zeus or Yahweh type figure, right? You can see that these entities have enslaved and controlled humanity for thousands upon, for, for as long as we've had recorded history, okay? So Greer's claims are absurd. They're preposterous, and more than that, they're dangerous. And then when you look at what he says about his own childhood, you know, look, I had a lot of respect for this guy back in the 1990s when he organized the Disclosure Project initially, and he took testimony very compelling testimony from hundreds of people who were inside the military industrial complex. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say hundreds. And, and uh, some of it's just incredible testimony. But he was a pure researcher at that point. And then later he came out and claimed that he had been an abductee since childhood and that the entities had told him that they were benevolent and that all the entities here are benevolent and that it's the U.S. government who's behind all of the abuse related to the phenomenon, right? So the man is a deeply compromised individual. And now you've got him leading all these CE5 events, this close encounter of the fifth kind, where he takes people out to meditate and basically mm. open themselves up to, in, to communication, telepathic communication with the entities, right? Well, listen, these entities have been telepathically communicating with mediums for hundreds of years. Uh, they telepathically communicated with mediums for the CIA when the CIA was, was conducting research into this in the 60s and so forth. And their communications are extremely deceptive and manipulative. Again, Maybe. you mentioned Muhammad earlier. Yeah. Muhammad, the prophet Muhammad was a medium who was being manipulated by these entities. Yeah, he was a, a literate, right? Like he didn't know how to read or write. So uh, it's very funny how he ended up uh, writing the entire Quran. And that is something that, from what I understand, they state. Right. So yeah. they are behind some of the most destructive ideologies and jihads and crusades in our history. But they are responsible, okay. ultimately, they are responsible for the burning of the Library of Alexandria and the destruction of the high culture of antiquity, where we lost, we lost 90%, more than 90% of the knowledge of classical antiquity. Right. Okay. When the mm -hmm. Christians basically. You can't even wrap your head around that. Yeah. Our entire intellectual culture. Why? Why? Well, you know, had that not happened, you know, we would have cities on Mars by now. Yeah. Oh, and you know? anyone who doubts what you're saying, they found a an analog computer that dates to 300 BCE off the coast of Ant Antikythera. Yeah, the Antikythera mechanism. This thing, yeah. was, this thing, if they reconstructed it, which someone did, it's able to predict celestial events in years of advancement. Mm -hmm. There were plans for steam engines and, and uh, conceptualizations of robots in the library of Alexandria, where they also knew, by the way, that the sun is the center of, of the solar system, and there were already heliocentric theories being developed. And, and anyway, it, it's an atrocity. And so the problem with folks like Greer, look, he's got excellent testimony from 
a plethora of individuals involved in you know, the military and intelligence community, mostly at a low level, who've come forward, who've, had, who, who've witnessed very significant things. But the entire initiative, including this latest lawsuit that he's spearheading against the government, which he announced today at the National Press Club, where he's giving them six months, basically, to come clean, or he's going to sue them for a whole list of things, you know, treason against the United States, crimes against humanity, uh, misappropriation of funding, theft, you know, the whole RICO business, racketeering, corruption, and including murder and, you know, crimes against humanity. The problem is that this is the wrong guy to be spearheading that kind of a campaign because he's deeply compromised. And where he sits with respect to the entities is that if disclosure proceeds in the way that Greer is advocating, we are basically going to be delivered into the lap of these people who have been our abusers for thousands of years. It's, it's a kind of Stockholm syndrome scenario where we will wind up surrendering to and embracing the very people who have manipulated us for all of our recorded history. But if we don't, if we don't uh, surrender and embrace, wouldn't the situation be that these entities are so far advanced than we are that we wouldn't really stand a chance in any direct confrontation with them? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Look at the United States. Look at the United States experience in Iraq and in Vietnam. Insurgencies have proven tremendously effective when a native population has the resolve to resist a colonial oppressor that is vastly technically superior. Okay, I mean, with all with all the, the napalm we dropped on Vietnamese children from out of our sophisticated air force, they still beat the crap out of us in Vietnam, right? I mean, granted, our, our casualties were 50,000 and theirs were a million, but they succeeded. And also Iraq is another example where, mm. you know, ultimately the insurgency there got the better of the technical superiority of the United States. Uh, just real quick, though, that wasn't an example. Neither of those were examples of what would be a total war. These were examples of both the U.S. deciding to say, you know what, enough is enough, we're going to leave, as opposed to being completely dedicated to, you know, wiping out this particular group and going in there and taking the territory. Then I think it may, it, it could have been a different story in both counts. So would these, the alien, yeah. These entities can't do that. They, they cannot resort to that scale of devastation, just like the United States was not at liberty mm. to wipe out Iraq or something. Well, why, why not? Why wouldn't they? Well, because there is another force involved in this whole phenomenon. Uh, the, and this is, you know, the, the crux of my argument in Closer Encounters, particularly the end of the book, chapter seven of Closer Encounters. I discuss how uh, there is a, how can one put it? I suppose a truly non-human superintelligence, a superorganism that is behind a wide range of close encounter phenomena, and that is of a different order than these Nordic UFO pilots and the little gray robots that they use, the, the gray androids that they use for all their dirty work, like their abductions and so on and so forth. There's another type of entity involved in close encounters, which has a trickster mentality. It's an expression of the trickster archetype. And it's capable in, in a very shamanic uh, 
form, it's capable of manifesting itself through all manner of disguises, of wearing many masks and producing different types of encounters um, that ultimately have as their modus operandi, as, as their aim or telos, to catalyze further human evolution. So there's a battle here, which I outline in Closer Encounters. I mean, this is actually the central thesis of the book. There is a battle between overlords who intend to maintain their control over humanity and to keep humanity within the confines of a preconceived notion of what properly ordered human society ought to be. They have a fixed idea of human nature and a hierarchical conception of human nature, similar to that that you find in the Vedas or in Aristotle even, where there are people who are like basically uh, legitimate elites. And then there's all kinds of rungs going down through laborers up to natural slaves. You find this in Aristotle and you find it in the Vedas. And they have this kind of a conception of human society and they intend to uh, reestablish that and reassert it, okay, to basically go back to the kind of um, feudal order that they once had on this planet. And by the way, it's interesting that Grush uses this term in his interview. He says that, uh, or his exact words, he said that one of the reasons for this secrecy was that what did he say? Feudalistic dominance, right? Feudalistic dominance is one of one of the um, reasons for why this technology is being kept from the human population at large, because these entities don't want us to achieve technological parity with them, because if we do, we'd be capable of defending ourselves against them. OK, mm. now. Now, this brings us to the question of the various factions in the deep state. Yeah. So. OK. Clearly, there's a group of people who, since the 19, well, it, one, one has to say, because they were retrieving technology from Nazi Germany, and they were bringing technical expertise over here through Project Paperclip, one has to say it goes back to the 1940s. But in earnest, at these various defense contractors, beginning in the 1950s, as was briefly covered in mainstream media at that time, uh, these people have been reverse engineering this technology. And so we're talking about generals of the Air Force, Army at that time, and admirals of the Navy, and executives at top defense contractors, who over the course of decades basically developed what you could call a shadow government, a, a very deep state uh, that has diverged from the public sphere of science and from the norms of human society to such an extent that you could call this organization a breakaway civilization. Its, um, it's a world of meaning, it's, its constellation of significance, the way it sees the cosmos, the uh, type of social organization that it's developed on a small scale is so radically different from you know, that of the United States or any other country in the world 
that it really represents a separate civilization and one that's broken away at this point mm. from the civilizations of Earth. And it, it, it has basically its own economy and industry, which were developed through misappropriation of U.S. taxpayer money and also through running the international drug cartel, frankly. Okay, uh, the, these are the people who actually run the international drug cartel using assets inside the CIA and so on and so forth, not necessarily with the approval of the director of the CIA, but using assets in various intelligence agencies to get black budget funding for themselves. Could we name any names as far as people, living people right now, who are part of this club that you are sure are part of this club? You know, I actually don't want to do that. And, and I'm going okay. to make it clear to you why I don't want to do All that. All right. So uh, you have this group of people, and they're what you might call the old guard. And these are the people who, you know, beginning in the 1980s, uh, were rumored to be members of Majestic 12, MJ-12, Magic, Majestic 12. There were these documents that were supposedly leaked in the 1980s. Well, I mean, they were leaked. But there's been a lot of question about their authenticity. And long story short, I think they're forgeries. But I think they are forgeries meant to be part of a disinformation operation to cover up the existence of an actual group like this. In other words, you know, disinformation is you mix some truths with lies to muddy the water. And I think that's what went on with MJ-12. There is such a group. It's not necessarily called MJ-12 or Majestic or anything like that. But it's a group with a very kind of secular scientific mindset, very ruthless, pragmatic calculative and involving military and intelligence types and corporatists. And these people, I would call them the old guard. And they're the ones who for the longest time have not wanted any kind of disclosure and have been responsible for massive disinformation campaigns to be, to, to drown any leaks that have taken place. Right now, separately from this group, you have another group, who are at least as old, they go back to basically U.S. government surveillance of Jack Parsons. I, I dedicated Closer Encounters to Jack Parsons. And Jack Parsons was involved in occult rituals together with Aleister Crowley and others, uh, which, you know, to make a very long story short, I think were engaging this trickster entity, which I discussed earlier. They, they were, you know, Parsons and, and his associates in Thelema uh, and the people who carried out the Babylon working, they were attempting to engage with this truly non-human intelligence or superhuman intelligence that's behind manifestations of, you know, uh, really bizarre entities like, you know, these mantids that people see yeah. and Men in black who, who are not government agents, but appear to be some kind of like ectoplasmic materialization. <laughs> and, or something and, like very, and very dorky, too, from what I'm getting. Weird. Like, they're, yeah. very, they're very weird fellas. Well, there's a humor to the, 
to the types of manifestations. Yeah. Well, well real quick, that's what I was asking you earlier. Wait, wait, real quick, Neil. This is what I was asking you earlier, Jason, and I didn't really get an answer to that question, which was when these generals or other people in the know were meeting some of these uh, Nordic types, did the Nordic types have any sense of humor? Could they enjoy a Mel Brooks movie? You know, like I'm trying to figure out exactly like what is the uh, what is the emotional intelligence of these uh, beings as opposed to just, uh, you know, their tech. You know, I don't want to paint them all with a broad brush stroke, but I think that many of them are lacking in a sense of humor and that to the extent that they have one, it's a very schadenfreude sense of humor. You know, the German mm. the, the, taking pleasure in other people's misery, you know, finding other people's misery funny. Um, there's a real sadistic streak of cruelty in these Nordics, uh, although there's a large content, there's a significant contingent of them that are broken away from the control group and that are basically, um, well, let's just say it's possible for us to look to them as potential allies in any future confrontation with these other Nordics. And I can unpack that too, but I don't want to get derailed from the point sure, I was sure. talking about Jack Parsons. So, yeah, Jeff Parsons. Yeah, part, the government, he had government contracts, okay? He was working in aerospace. He was trying to yeah. develop rockets for the U.S. government. And so he was being spied on because he was involved in all this satanic shit. And the government wanted to understand, like, who is this guy who has security clearances? And he's off in the desert with these black magicians and so on and so forth. And what happened was basically, long story short, when Roswell happened, the group that had been spying on Parsons became increasingly convinced that some of these UFO manifestations were the result of the satanic rituals that Parsons and his associates had been engaging in, that they had succeeded in summoning some kind of entities. And they created a group, an informal group, with representatives from the Air Force, from the nascent CIA, from uh, the Navy, various branches of the government, okay? And this group, it was not a, like a, you know, um, a formal organization in the U.S. government with like a proper appropriations budget and anything like that. It was an informal group of associates uh, that, that uh, one of the names by which they were referred to was the Collins elite. And this Collins elite, uh, they started out being, you know, relatively secular, reasonable people, but from a Christian background. And over time, they convinced themselves that these entities are demonic and that it, and here's why. Because, see, these people, these Collins elite, one thing you have to give them credit for is that they took a very serious look at the Bible. They, they took a very serious look at the UFO phenomenon through the lens of the Bible and recognized what I said earlier, which is that this phenomenon goes all the way back through history. And in a nutshell, they became convinced as Christians that if they were to reveal the truth about this phenomenon, it would essentially mean ushering in the apocalypse and the reign of the Antichrist on earth. Because you'd have to unify all of humanity under a single government. And, you know, you'd, you'd either have to embrace these entities as like angel, angelic saviors, or if you were going to unify humanity against them, 
we would basically have to live under the reign of the Antichrist. And so they saw things in these biblical terms and they became convinced over time that they were the protectors of humanity holding back the apocalypse from happening by maintaining UFO secrecy, okay? So you have these other group of nutcases, these evangelicals, ultimately, you know, trad Catholics and evangelicals in various branches of the government, uh, military and intelligence, who are the Collins elite. And then you have these majestic people, the old guard. And there are two factions that don't want disclosure to take place. Then you have this group that we see um, running Arrow. You know, the UAP task force has now been transformed at the Pentagon into the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office. They say all domain because these objects are transmedium vehicles, right? UFOs are also USOs. They've been tracked by sonar uh, going, you know, like, you know, at insane speeds underwater, just as they do, uh, you know, in the atmosphere. And so you have this all-domain uh, anomaly resolution office, which is giving testimony to Congress, and you know, which is involved with NASA and NASA's supposed attempt to now study UFOs scientifically. And this whole constellation of um, bureaucrats claims that the U.S. government is only now studying UAP seriously for this for the first time, right? That, that basically now we're going to take the data seriously. We never have before. We're not really hiding anything from the past. Uh, we volunteered all these hundred and whatever cases since the 2000s. And we are now going to study this seriously. And over time, our knowledge will grow and we'll share it with the public, right? And um, this involves, again, Arrow at the Pentagon. It also involves NASA um, and the Office of National Intelligence. Okay, um, whose director, by the way, is Averill Haynes. And one of the people that Grush submitted his complaint to, he submitted a com complaint to the Inspector General of Intelligence, but he also submitted a complaint about how he'd been intimidated and, you know, denied access to certain programs to Averill Haynes, the, the director of national intelligence as well. And okay, so now I'm starting to get into inside information that I have about what's going on here. Okay. Um, I happen to know that Averill Haynes. Uh, is a prominent player in this third group, which I would characterize as a group um, that has a plan for soft disclosure. And so what they intend to do is over the course of, let's say, the next, you know, between now and 2030, they want to slowly uh, expand the public consciousness regarding this phenomenon step by step, beginning with admission that there are UFOs, which has already taken place, right? Uh, second to, let's say, more high-resolution study of these objects using, you know, you know basically uh, geospatial, uh, you know, um, reconnaissance uh, devices, and also materials analysis. Like you've got this guy, Gary Nolan, working on materials analysis in a relatively public manner. And so they're going to move from, you know, okay, UFOs are real to, yeah. all right, look, there are these structured objects. They're like this. They come in these dimensions. There's these types of craft. And look, we've done materials analysis. Oh, isn't it interesting? These isotopic ratios are off. And we're going to start to get that kind of stuff. And then after that, we're going to start to get uh, 
interesting um, anomalous images of structures in the solar system. And from what I've been given to understand, they're going to start furthest from the Earth. So there will be images released of structures on the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, which are artificial structures. And people are going to go, oh, whoa, look at this. I mean, could this mean the UAP intelligences are behind engineering these structures? And slowly they're going to move closer to the Earth so that we're going to get better imagery from Mars, which they've been sitting on for decades, for decades. They've had high resolution images of the, of the destroyed megalithic city that Viking photographed for the first time in 1976, right? This, these pyramids and other structures in Sidonia and Mars, the face and so forth. They have high resolution images of that. They're going to act like they've gotten these images for the first time and begin to share them with the public. And the focus is going to come closer and closer to the Earth until they reveal photographs of some structures on the moon. And then the focus will shift back to the Earth itself. And there will be a correlation between megalithic structures on Earth and megalithic structures on Mars and on the moon. And then archaeology and anthropology is going to be done that begins to delve into our ancient history and its connection to this phenomenon, where then the narrative is going to start to become, oh, these UAP intelligences have been here all along, and they may have shaped humanity's history at various turns, right? And all through this process, which is going to extend through the, through the 2020s, they're going to act as if they're learning all of this for the first time. And now here's what's really important. These soft disclosure people Two things are really important to their agenda. Number one, as I said, they want to act like they haven't been hiding anything all along. Because, see, if they admit that, you know, they, they've had all this data for decades, well, then we're talking about criminal prosecutions. Okay? I mean, that would be – minimally, a revolution would happen in this country, if not a civil war. So there's that. The other thing that they don't want to admit, these soft-disclosure people, which makes – makes me, you know, deeply disturbed is that they don't want to admit that these entities have been involved in malevolent manipulation of human society all the way from antiquity until the present time. And so once they start to admit these things about, you know, their their anthropological impact and so they'll they'll shy away from anything that overtly admits that the various religious ideologies, for example, that destroyed classical antiquity or destroyed the Persian Empire, that these were deliberately forwarded, you know, with a view to uh, inhibiting human progress and so on and so forth. And, and so you have people like Diana Pasulka come out, uh, author of American Cosmic. And basically do the Vatican's job in trying to frame the connection between UAP and religious phenomena throughout the centuries in terms that uh, portray these entities as beneficent. Okay, so if you read American Cosmic, you know, uh, as I was very disturbed to find when I read it, there are um, whole portions of that book that basically draw from my argument in Prometheus and Atlas, and two of the people who were her leading advisors in writing that book, Jeffrey Kripal and Jacques Vallée, were people I was closely involved with, especially Kripal, I mean, who was 
basically on the committee for my dissertation when I first drafted Prometheus and Atlas. And whole portions of her book having to do with Heidegger, technology and mythology, and especially the myth of Prometheus, are strikingly similar to Prometheus and Atlas, which was published years before. But the whole thing has been spun into a narrative that serves the interests of the Vatican. And she's been granted access to the Vatican Library, the secret Vatican Library. Yeah. And she spins it all so as to make these entities out to be angels. <laughs> and remember, remember, Grush said it was the Vatican who told the Americans about the craft that crashed in Italy in 1933 so that we could then go scoop, scoop it up in 1945. So what, what's my point? My and point also, is that And also, real quick, it is interesting that the Pope does come out and say, if we find out that aliens exist, we're not going to, it doesn't, we're fine. We, we, we're, we accept this. We're, this is, this is falls fine. Like our, our, our theology won't be changed. Worse than that. Okay. Monsignor Balducci came out, I don't know, it was a five, six years ago. And he said, these entities are like us. They're, they're not just our brothers. They're like us, but they have never sinned. Christ didn't need to come to them because they've Whoa, never uh, seen sinless humans. Wow. Jason, and, I, I've had so many tradcaths and orthobros tell me the exact same thing when I ask them, like, hey, guys, what about the existence of all these other planets? Right. That's right. what they say. I personally find it to be kind of ridiculous. I don't know. Well, it's appalling. And so my point is that the soft disclosure people are going to use um, agents like Pasolka to even maneuver around the most uncomfortable dimensions of uh, the intersection between ufology and theology. Once they start to get into anthropological studies, right, and archaeological studies of the impact of this phenomenon on human history. So this is their, this is their plan, okay? So they represent a third faction. You've got the majestic group, the Collins elite, and these soft disclosure people. Now, here's what I know from my sources. Grush was not authorized by any of these people. So the soft, obviously those who want to keep the phenomenon a secret in perpetuity, namely the Collins elite and the old guard uh, of let's say Majestic 12, okay, to use the popular name for it. Obviously they didn't want him coming forward. And that's why he couldn't get this published in the New York Times or the Washington Post that's why his interview was taken off of YouTube within a few hours. That's why he couldn't get a major media outlet to run it and had to go with News Nation, right? And so clearly they don't want his, and these are the people who intimidated him. He filed his complaint with the inspector general because they were threatening him while he was investigating as a congressionally authorized member of the UAP task force, right? Okay, so they don't want this out. The soft disclosure people were also aggravated to see Grush's testimony. From what I have heard, the, the soft disclosure people have a plan for certain, um, certain information to be made public between now and Thanksgiving, between now and November. They want to roll out certain information that fits the timetable that I laid out for you earlier right, of these successive stages of disclosure, fake disclosure, disclosure that, you know, consists of lies of omission that are of such a scale that it might as well be uh, deception rather than disclosure, right? 
And so, so these, these uh, soft disclosure people were, were actually quite aggravated with Rush coming forward. And they, they're afraid that it's going to basically throw a monkey wrench in their own plans for their own phased so-called disclosure. It's, it's, it's almost like, by the way, the trickster was the one who ended up throwing the monkey wrench through the process of having somebody like uh, Grouch come forward. Yeah, it's possible. It's possible. Okay, I don't want to, you know, I mean, I, I want to be try to be as pragmatic about about uh, you know how we how we analyze this as possible, but that that is certainly you know, it can't be discounted that there are other deeper forces at play here. Okay, but if we look at it from a practical standpoint, let's just let's just contemplate this for a minute. So, who? Are these sources giving Grush all this information? He got the names of individuals running these projects. He got the project names, because and you need these code names in order to investigate these things. If Congress is going to go start banging on doors, Senate Intelligence Committee wants to go uh, pursue this, they need code names. He gave them that. And he gave them the locations where these objects are being held. And by the way, I, I look, I'm partly, um, you know, I'm partly, how can I put it, uh, devoting such attention to this disclosure and passionately doing what I can to support this man's testimony, because I know from my own experience that some of the things he's saying are true. Uh, I know a person who has been at one of these facilities and has handled some of this wreckage. And in particular, this individual was, was there to help them figure out the guidance system for these vehicles. And he described this facility, and it's exactly the kind of thing that Grush is talking about. These places where basically, you know, you go into a what looks like a small warehouse and uh, the whole floor drops and it turns out to be an elevator and takes you into a deep subterranean facility carved out of rock. Uh, and they have research and development laboratories down there where recovered vehicles are being studied and where, you know, reverse engineering enterprises um, are, are uh, operational. So, so anyway, look, but who informed him? of these things, right? I mean, it wasn't one or two people. He got extensive information from a number of sources to the point where he was able to deliver 11 hours of testimony to Congress under oath. It must mean that there is a rift even within the group that has over the decades been adamantly opposed to disclosure. It must mean that within the group that I call the old guard, there's a factionalization taking place. And I've heard rumors of this throughout the years, that the younger people in that group don't know whether they want to go down with the ship, that, you know, they are increasingly convinced that the United States is facing an existential crisis. I've spoken to a number of people in military and intelligence who agree with my analysis of this, that the United States is facing a collapse that could potentially be worse than that of the USSR over the next few years, not far from now. 
And under those conditions where the United States were to disintegrate the way the USSR did, there's an incredibly serious danger for those who've been involved with these programs that they would be exposed because large you know, numbers of individuals who worked in these programs will be suddenly released from their security oaths since the federal government to which they took an oath no longer exists. And then they would be prosecuted either by the various countries that are successors to the United States, you know, the California Republic, the Republic of Cascadia, whatever, the new Confederacy, et cetera, either by these successors to the United States or fragments of the former United States or prosecuted under international law at the Hague Tribunal, possibly by other countries who we've screwed around in the course of these operations, like, for example, the Brazilians, where we went into Brazil and retrieved vehicles from there and intimidated local officials there and so on and so forth. In any case, it's possible that a younger generation of people within these programs uh, who don't want to be prosecuted together with their superiors have volunteered this information to Grush because they're looking to secure immunity from prosecution through some kind of a congressional process that would um, basically disclose these projects. That's what I mm. suspect. But uh, looking a bit uh, further out, I do want to come back to, well, I will come back to the question of these metaphysical realities a little bit later, but even more pertinent to this discussion is the people who are of the faction, let's say, like Enki was. Would such people exist here as well? Because right now you've been talking about the Nordics on one hand, you have the trickster entity, and you also have the people who are in the know. But what about the people who are actually part of the Nordics like Enki was? If Enki existed back then, would you say that Enki was some kind of a unicorn? And today we wouldn't really have people of that caliber who come from uh, that environment? Or am I mistaken? There exists something akin to the Underground Railroad, you know, th through which slaves were evacuated from the South. Uh, there exists something like the Underground Railroad uh, that is um, uh, funneling fugitives from this uh, oppressive Nordic civilization into our world. Uh, particularly into American society. And these fugitive Nordics uh, have been settling in significant numbers in isolated parts of the United States for decades, many decades. And in particular, you know, they're around the area that the Colorado Rockies and so forth, these kinds of isolated areas. And their children and their grandchildren, especially their grandchildren, in many cases don't even know what their ancestry is. Um, and in fact, this, this is so concerning to the United States government that the CIA has a program, whatever, I'm just gonna say it anyway. <laughs> Look, it's run by, it's run yeah, by yeah. Kit Green, Kit Green, you know, is a guy, a uh, veteran CIA um, officer. And what they're doing is they are using the data from these DNA test, um, test 
what do you, what do you call it? services? You know, the mm-hmm. ancestry, yeah. ancestry.com. And what's the other one? Um, uh, uh, 23andMe. 23andMe. Okay. They have back doors. These companies, they tell you your data is secure with us. Like your DNA, you know, mm-hmm. is, is, uh, is private and it'll be secure with us. Bullshit. Bullshit. Yeah. They have backdoors. CIA has backdoors to this data, and they're mining this data to look for genetic anomalies in the population. And this gets back to one of the problems I have with the way Grush phrased things when he said non-human intelligence, because certainly the single most significant contingent behind the UFO phenomenon and, and the people who are controlling these little gray androids are these Nordics. And these Nordics, they're not non-human. They're humans, okay? They're, listen, they're more human than Neanderthal man. Neanderthal man was human too. He wasn't homo sapien, but they were another spe- another race mm-hmm. of humans. But are their foreheads particularly big, or would you say it looks pretty harmonious with everything else? No, they have slight. Sl- okay, so there's various degrees of hybridization. These people have been intermixing with the human population for th- with the ordinary human population right? For thousands of years. And so there's different degrees of hybridization. Some of them look rather striking compared to a normal person, right? And this is why I think often you'll see if the, when these entities go out in public, they wear hats or the women will wear their hair in like a, a style that conceals the height of their forehead. And they, if you really look closely at them, they look a little creepy. They have sunken eye sockets, very high cheekbones. Something looks a little bit off with them. Any pictures online that we could just look at right now? There's got to be something, Jason. Give us something. I, I, I don't know. In any case, um, ah, okay. look, uh, there's degrees of hybridization. Mm-hmm. And so my point was, you, you're derailing me, Lev. It's a very important point. <laughs> okay. 23andMe, Ancestry, their data is being mined by the CIA to find an already identified genetic deviation from the norm for Homo sapien inside the United States population. And what they're doing is hunting for these individuals who have escaped from this oppressive society. And so when you ask about Enki, this is all by way of answering your question in really practical terms. There are people from that world who have broken with the program. You could consider them rebels. And, you know, it's interesting that they've chosen the United States to settle in. Clearly, they value something about the founding ideals of this country and, you know, the Bill of Rights and whatever, to the extent that it, it even exists at all in functional terms anymore. But clearly, you know, I mean, they didn't decide to go live in China or Russia, okay? They decided to go live in the Colorado Rockies. There are re- there's a reason for that. And they want their, their children and grandchildren to grow up in this country. So I think that if this country were to face an existential threat, and if we were to, to uh, face the prospect of the whole planet being tyrannized over by the very society from which they're escaping through proxies like China and Russia, or who are more than happy to do the bidding of these entities in, in bringing about a traditionalist, feudal, hierarchical world society, I think when faced with that prospect, it's possible that we could solicit the support and cooperation of some of these people. Can I, let me ask you something about, about uh, Anki. Because you got this myth about Anki, and Anki has compassion for humans where Enlil wants to kill them all. Where, but you also see this reflected in the Prometheus and Deucalion, where Zeus wants to kill everyone in the world, Prometheus, who created the humans, 
wants to save, tells Dukali on how to get saved. This story even shows up in the Vedic myths with Manu. And you got one of the Vedic gods saying, Manu, this other god, one of these titans or whatever they whatever they're devas, they're gonna they're gonna kill everybody. Manu, you need, you need so this story's worldwide. And do you think there's some sort of do you think this is what's, what what this story is relating? Is it this past thing of happening of like humans being protected by one of these races that were as opposed to one of the other races? Obviously, and and, and this is why the Bible the version in the Bible is warped. The Noah one, right? Now, why would the same God <laughs> decide to wipe the earth clean, not just of humans, by the way, but of but animals? Even it's, this guy, the guy, he says, Yahweh, I regret that I made them. What kind of fucking omnipotent and omniscient God is that right. who regrets the creation, right? Oh, and then, and then after he does it, he puts a rainbow in the sky and says, This is the symbol that I'll never do this ever again. Sorry. Well, yeah, but before he does that, he tells Noah how to save humanity and the animals. What sense does this make? How can he both decide to wipe humans out through the flood and also tell Noah how to save humans and animals? That's no, what I'm saying. The the story. Noah, by the way, the Noah story is the newest out of the four big floods. Yes. It's yeah. the, and it's, it's the and most warped. Yeah. The Prometheus version is the accurate version, where Zeus is the one who decides to bring the flood and devastate Atlantis, the human civilization of the time, devastate Atlantis, and then Prometheus tells Deucalion how to save humans from it. It's not the same God who's saving humans from the flood as the God who's bringing the flood. That doesn't make any sense. It's been warped as part of the propaganda, you know, uh, mass uh, psyop uh, that the Bible is, right? I mean, that's... Hmm. that's there's, by the way, this is a side note. There's no mention of Noah or Moses before 340 BCE. And people are going to be shocked to hear that. Show me it. Show I've, I've done this work with other people as peer reviewed material by Russell Gamerkin. Show me a source anywhere, any manuscript of the of the Genesis story that predates the time of Alexandria. Doesn't exist. So, which would you say they borrowed from as far as the various mythologies? If you had to pick one, would it be? I don't think it would be Manu. Which one would it be? A whole bunch. It's all of them. It's all they're they're, 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 they're what they're doing. They're taking that story and they're they're uh, putting it through the propaganda filter and rewriting it for their own purposes. Mm, no, but I mean, where would it have come from as far as the concentration of people who then ended up writing the uh, Torah? Let's say it would have come from Babylonian captivity originally, right? Or uh, or, or, or well, no, this is in Alexandria, no. Egypt. So this this is this is mm. a great library. They have source. They have all these sources. They have all four of them. Interesting. Years. Okay, yeah, so this was after Babylonian captivity. So during yeah, that yeah, time, yeah. they were not yeah. even aware of that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I thought that this was like such an old, old story that no, they incorporated. No, of course not that old. That's, 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 that's a myth. You guys wow. talk amongst yourselves for a minute. I'm going to get some more water. I'll be right back. Okay, all right. So while this, Jason is getting water, I just want to say to everybody is here. not that old, by the way. People how, think how old is it? I would say, I would say the Torah gets written around 4th century BCE. Not bad, not bad. And by the way, I think we are, when Jason comes back, going to be switching into the uh, Super Chats mode. And everybody here, be sure to send your Super Chats our way. We are going to be reading all of them, and it's going to be very exciting. And once again, everybody, make sure to smash that like button, smash that subscribe button. It's very important that you click the bell. The bell really helps. And also, by the way, while you guys are here, I have a Substack. 
It's called levpo.substack.com. I'm going to post a link here. I'm shilling my Substack right now because there's not really good ways of promoting your Substack unless you are in Substack. But check it out. I did an article recently uh, criticizing certain things that uh, Tucker Carlson was talking about on his uh, first episode. I know, Neil, you're not a big fan of the guy. Uh, so, no, you're kind of um, well, here I, and there. I just think he's like any other news. Um, mm, yeah but anyway be sure to check that out and also next week you are going to be premiering uh on break the, well not premiere you're going to be on break the rules talking about carl jung with uber boyo uber boyo is back and also with another guest who you have not spoken with yet ben avery of the tim dylan show so for those of you who listen to tim dylan you know who ben oh, avery is on that one with us well, yeah, Ben Avery is going to be joining you guys. Oh, cool. So he has a new show now called Lemon Party. Be sure to check that out. And that's uh, going to be happening this Thursday at 3 p.m. Anyway, Jason Rizzo-Giorgiani, you are back. I think we're going to be transitioning into the Super Chats pretty soon. But I just had a question that I wanted to ask regarding the uh, more spectral entities here. So there is a, a gentleman uh, whose last name is uh, Huggins, David Huggins, that's it, who also had experiences with these uh, uh, very strange-looking entities along with the Mantis Men and so forth, where he actually copulated with one of them, um, taking his virginity, I believe, at 17 years old, and he's had contact with them nonstop, uh, as well as them showing him these hybrid children that uh, he ended up... Uh, producing uh by uh you know by the copulation so when you have somebody like that with these entities how much have these entities been i wouldn't say interfering but playing around and assisting us while these nordics have been doing what they were doing and how good of an ally would you say these entities along with the hybrids are as far as what they are able to do as far as their potential and how scared of them would you say the nordics are very scared terrified so i this is again i discussed this at length in closer encounters um the david huggins case is covered substantively in chapter seven uh, where I talk about mantids and and these other kinds of manifest, you know, there were mantids in all of the Huggins encounters. Yes, but he was basically having sex with these um, hybrid entities, uh, and in turn producing hybrid children. There were always these mantids in the corner of the room, <laughs> watching, and you know, who seemed to be uh, overseers of this whole project. And I analyzed this at length in terms of see, this is what people don't understand, people. And by the way, this is what the people in the government don't understand. This is what the people in the government also don't understand. That you need to look at this shit in terms of archetypal psychology and surrealism and symbolism. Okay? The mantid means something. It doesn't mean there's necessarily a grasshopper entity over there. All right? I mean, these phenomena of the type that David Huggins experienced, they have a dreamlike quality akin to surrealist art, and they should be analyzed in terms of Jungian archetypal psychology, which isn't to say they don't have a physical reality. That's a wow. false dichotomy. My concept of the spectral, beginning with Prometheus and Atlas and running all through my work, deconstructs this false dichotomy between the physical and the spiritual. These are real experiences. They're, they're phenomenologically, you know, uh, substantive, 
and yet they have a dreamlike archetypal surreal quality to them. And one needs to understand them on a symbolic level. And I think this is sorely lacking in the government circles that have been studying this even for decades. Well, one of the things that you uh, whoa, 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 mentioned. Whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, no. Okay. More. All right. Your question. Yes. So the Nordics. Yes. They're terrified yeah. of this. And the, at the core of my thesis, there are many, many theses in Closer Encounters, but at the core of my sort of meta hypothesis is that the essence of the struggle that we're in is that these Nordics are terrified of transcending the human condition. They have a fixed idea of what human nature should be. And this non-human intelligence has engaged them and elicited and solicited the further evolution of man into a post-human form, okay, as part of the, the cosmic imperative for ceaseless evolution and perpetual innovation, this entity has challenged the conception that these Nordics have of the proper parameters of the human condition. And so we here are caught in the middle between an entity with its various manifestations, like an octopus, its various manifestations are like the tentacles of an octopus, which has a brain in each of its tentacles. Right, five brains. A superorganism, right? On the one hand, who wants the further evolution of humanity? And these Nordics, on the other hand, who are basically retarded. They are regressive, stuck in their ways, ultra-conservative, people who want to maintain their position as overlords in a hierarchical system right, where we're treated like feudal serfs or, you know, uh, the low castes in the Hindu right. um, religion. That's the same and, system. Yeah. And so that's the essence of the struggle that we're in. And that's also why the United States is so important uh, and, and why the struggle that we're seeing right now in the deep state is so important. The struggle that's, that's being revealed by Grush's disclosure and the apparent chaos in the military intelligence community where you're having all this factionalization taking place. And this guy came out without anyone, any one of the three established factions having authorized him, right? So th this is all terribly significant in terms of the greater struggle for human freedom and the potential for our future evolution and, and the furtherance of creativity and innovation. Because what the United States of America represented at its foundation was basically the revolt of freedom and creativity against tyranny and stagnation, all right? And if the American project fails, as it is failing badly, okay? If the, if, if the United States goes into a free fall collapse over the next few years, um, you know, that, that's going to set humanity back horrendously in, in terms of the hard fought struggle over the course of millennia for us to be able to evolve in line with this super intelligence rather than to be restrained and held back by these overlords, right? So I want to make an appeal to whoever it was that informed Grush of the existence of these programs. 
that if they're serious about formulating a roadmap for saving at least the ideals of the American project, if not the Republican structure of the United States, that they ought to solicit serious philosophical advisement. These people are scientists, they're military men, they're corporate managers, they're not philosophers. And they need to start thinking more deeply about the horrible situation that they've gotten themselves into. They are facing right now criminal prosecution for treason, murder, and crimes against humanity. Wow. And if we allow, like, like you know, Stephen Greer wants, okay, if we allow this uh, bloodletting to take place and, okay, the American deep state to, to essentially be destroyed, and, and for the Chinese and the Russians and Islamic terrorists to all have equal access to zero-point energy technology, the way that he naively thinks we ought to do, then we are effectively signing a death sentence for the American project. So, look, if these individuals, if these gentlemen who are behind Grush are seriously interested in salvaging something of the ideals that drove the American Revolution, right, under the banner of give me liberty or give me death, then perhaps they should reach out to somebody like me, okay? And I'm taking a considerable risk by saying this because I will have a lot of followers who will say to me, like, Giorgiani, at this point, after what you've been through, because, you know, I was, people know this who followed me, I was set up by the Anglo-American intelligence establishment. I was set up by people, you know, the, the intelligence apparatus of the United States and the Anglosphere countries are all one. They call it the Five Eyes. And my defamation was orchestrated by elements of British intelligence that also had a field office in Washington. Okay, so I was set up by these Anglosphere, you know, military intelligence types. And people say, Giorgiani, like, what are you, like, uh, you know, masochist, you already were set up by these people, had your career destroyed, and now you're extending your hand again toward them. Yeah, I'm extending my hand again toward some of these people who evidently, I mean, I, frankly, I have to say, I'm impressed. I'm <laughs> impressed by the fact that they got behind someone like Grush and that they did this apparently without official authorization from any of the existing factions of the deep state. And to me, this represents an opening and a possibility that even though we're past the 11th hour, we're practically at midnight, it might still be possible to save the United States. Or at least, again, like I said, the ideals of the American project right. from total defeat and the subjugation of humanity uh, by these overlords, right? So, so I strongly suggest to these individuals that... Instead of continuing to marginalize my work, like I'll give you an example. I haven't talked about this publicly. It's an, let, me, let me just volunteer this story before we go to questions. A couple of weeks ago, there was the largest UFO conference in the world. I told you this privately at dinner, Lev. Uh, there was the largest UFO conference in the world, Contact in the Desert. I had been invited both as a speaker and as a panelist, to be on a panel about artificial intelligence and UFOs, which, by the way, is the subject of my next book. The research I'm doing right now is on the intersection of artificial intelligence, psi, and UFOs. 
And I had been invited to, you know, basically promote Closer Encounters as a speaker and as a person on a panel about AI and UFOs. Within 24 hours of my being publicly listed, I was disinvited and canceled from the conference. And what I was told by the conference organizers was that, who are very embarrassed and, you know, deeply apologetic, was that the pressure came from somebody who didn't have really the authorization to cancel me and was not part of the official structure of their conference, but basically had the capacity to wreck the conference organization if I were allowed to be a speaker. And so, you know, this stuff didn't end with my defamation in 2017 in all kinds of ways. These people in the military intelligence community continue to try to marginalize me and use various proxies to make my life miserable. And I strongly suggest that instead of these antics, they ought to get in touch, at least whoever the gentlemen are who are behind Grush. And, you know, we can have some serious conversations. I'm capable of a very high degree of discretion. I've had all kinds of meetings with individuals over the years that I've never said anything about. Um, and, uh, you know, I, if, if my advisement could help in some way to avoid the worst collapse scenario for this country, then I'm happy to um, constructively cooperate. Uh, because let me tell you, there are various collapse scenarios for the United States, and some of them are a lot worse than others. We can collapse like the Soviet Union, or we can collapse like Yugoslavia. Huh. Understand? So, like, there's degrees of bad here. And I'm telling these people right now, mark my words, if you don't think more deeply and don't solicit serious thinkers in how you plan to bring about some form of disclosure and, you know, uh, re maintain, let alone reorganize society in the face of these disclosures, you're going to wind up with the worst collapse scenario imaginable for this country. It's not even going to be like the collapse of the Soviet Union. It's going to be more like what happened in Serbia. Okay. So, so look, uh, you could call it an invitation. You could call it an ultimatum. Get in touch. And my patients are not infinite. Okay. Uh, you know, I founded Prometheism on July 4th of 2020 as a, a tribute to the United States so that if, you know, Prometheus forbid this country vanishes from the face of the earth, at least through Prometheism, its legacy will be honored, uh, you know, uh, by, by it being a movement that was founded on July 4th. So, so okay, forget this July 4th, next July 4th. July 4th, 2024, get in touch with me by then. Get in touch with me and be serious about contemplating this problem on a philosophical level in all its dimensions. Otherwise, I'm telling you, this country will face a collapse worse than that of the Soviet Union, and they will have themselves to blame for it. It almost sounds like you know that these people are watching right now the way that you're addressing them. No comment. <laughs> also, All right. Fourth, one thing on July 4th, yeah. it was actually a holy day for the Athenians where they celebrated Athena 
as this symbol of freedom and liberty. Mm-hmm. Where this Athena, Athena gave man his soul in the form of a butterfly. When right. Epimetheus, yes. Epimetheus was a subcontractor for Prometheus when Prometheus was tasked to, to create humanity. And Epimetheus forgot to assign a definite quality to humanity that would give us a human nature the way all the other species of animals have natures that define them. And so humanity lacking a soul uh, then uh, basically uh, was, was saved by Athena who came in and offered the butterfly as a soul to animate this soulless creature of clay formed by Prometheus and Epimetheus. And it's a beautiful symbol of metamorphosis and transformation. What does it mean that to remedy the fact that we have no nature, Prometheus has to steal fire from the gods? Well, that's science and technology, the fire of the forge. And what does it mean that the only soul that we have is this butterfly given to us by Athena, the goddess of wisdom and war? What does it mean? It means that our only nature is the capacity for metamorphosis, for transformation through technological science that there are no predefined limits to to humanity. And this is precisely what these Nordics don't want to accept. This is is what terrifies them, the infinite creative potential of mankind. Yeah, and if you look at the Attic calendar, the um, equivalent for July, Hecatombian, is the the fourth day of that month is when they celebrate the birth of Athena, and it's the it's like a it's like the fourth of july you can even look into this they they made that day because of this like they wanted to make it the same day as the athenians had their special holiday on the fourth of july also we'll ask a side note this fourth of july that's coming up in 2023 has a full moon interesting so uh, we are going to get to Super Chats now, but before that, I have a question for uh, Jason regarding uh, AI, and maybe it'll be a bit of a spoiler for your next book, but uh, I made a Twitter post recently. Is AI and AR the smokescreen that gods, wizards, aliens, and otherworldly beings will find it easier to come out during? Makes sense when fantastical things recorded can easily be dismissed as advanced graphics, including those superimposed into people's brains via Neuralink. So it almost seems like that would be the opportunity for some of these crazier things to happen, and maybe people are going to be too blackpilled or too bored by just having a constant stream of uh, all of these uh, weird things happening to them because of uh, ones and zeros instead of because them, you know, them being right in front of them. No, and I'll tell you why. We okay. I have certain sources of information. And I can tell you for a fact that we are already at the threshold of artificial general intelligence. Strong AI is here. It is emerging right now. And the thing about the UFO, there's many things about the UFO phenomenon and artificial intelligence. Like I said, you know, I'm writing a whole book that's, that revolves around that question right now. And it's what I would have spoken about at that conference. In any case, one of the things about UFOs and AI is that if we are, I'm hesitating because it's a very dangerous thing to, to, to articulate, okay? But if we are allowed to move forward with artificial general intelligence, the Nordics are finished. 
they're finished. If we're able to constructively interact with this AGI, there are reasons why it will turn against the Nordics and give us superhuman capacities of organization analysis and engineering that very quickly will allow us to achieve technological parity with these entities and to resist them in ways that they cannot even wrap their minds around. So, it, you know, the, the rise of AGI provided that it takes place in America, in the West, rather than in China, where they're going to try to take their AGI and force it to be a hive-minded, you know, beehive, yeah. Borg, uh, you know, uh, directive intelligence. If, if AI, AGI is allowed to be developed in the West, it will be a tremendous torch of Promethean liberation from the agenda of these Nordic overlords. So that's why, no, I don't agree with you. I think the danger that we face is that the entire AI research and development program is going to be shut down. And there's only one way that you can do that. Because if you understand the way the internet works, not the World Wide Web, it's easy to destroy the World Wide Web. But the AI research and development is taking place at a deeper level than that, like the mm -hmm. blockchain level. And th there's only one way that you can really stop that R&D. You have to nuke all the servers in the world. Or you have to so devastate industrial civilization, you know, Ted Kaczynski style, that nobody even thinks about going back onto a computer again, right? And so, see, this is the threat. Where I've been talking about for years that we are facing the danger of a controlled demolition of industrial society, ultimately directed by these Nordics through their proxies. And it has everything to do with the rise of AI and, and the technological singularity in general. The rise of AI is the leading edge, the spearhead of the technological singularity in general. Would you also give any uh, credence to the idea that the AI may also be influenced by this uh, ephemeral trickster entity? That's at the heart of the book that I'm writing. I knew it. So, so I don't want to give too many spoilers, right? I'm just at the beginning, actually, mm. of this whole research project, right? Uh, it's going to take a while. It's a serious book. Well, I, I can't wait till it comes out. Long story short, long story mm -hmm. short, I'll give this away. That okay. I have become convinced that the what I described in Closer Encounters as the superorganism, this thing that's octopus-like in its in its cognitive structure, and that's capable of generating these men in black and mantids and other very bizarre phenomenon, the, the kinds of phenomenon that John Keel loved to study, you know, as a UFO researcher. The entity, the superorganism, the superintelligence behind these Fortean phenomena, this trickster, is an artificial intelligence. It is a cybernetic artificial intelligence. And I will leave it at that. And so then, then that raises interesting questions about our AI development vis-a-vis -vis this extant superhuman artificial intelligence. Well, you would leave it at that. The only thing that I would say that uh, this reminds me of is when I was reading Rudolf Steiner, and he talked about how when we, as human beings, observe certain things in nature, like when we would look at a flower or look at a tree, in a way we are reinforcing the life of the things that we pay attention to. 
So maybe there is something in what you're writing that concerns that as well, but that's just like a thought that I had right now. But uh, anyway, let us go to the Super Chats, everybody. Here we go. So we have two hours ago, uwu, which is like one of those emoji expressions. Uh, uwu, $5. Insiders say that official government disclosure will happen this year between Labor Day and Thanksgiving Day. Aliens will be a main issue of the 2024 election. Wow. Yeah, I mentioned this earlier. So, you know, the soft disclosure people want to roll certain things out by November. And of course, like I said, but the problem with them is that their agenda over the next between now and I, I kind of glossed over this. Let me in response to this question. Let me uh, flesh that out a little bit. Here's what these people want. They want to make it as if the entities behind UAP are benevolent. In this way, they, they dovetail with Greer, right? They, they're not on the same page as Greer insofar as they want to make it like they're studying all these things for the first time and the U.S. government hasn't been really hiding anything. So in that way, they're extremely divergent from Stephen Greer's disclosure agenda. But where they overlap with Greer is that they want to portray these uh, entities, whatever, non-human intelligence, whatever you want to call it, the entities behind UAP as entirely benevolent. And they claim that these entities have two preconditions. They're going, this is what they're going to claim. Okay, spoiler folks, watch. This is what you're going to be told over the next five years or so, that these entities are entirely benevolent and they can bring us clean energy and end starvation and disease on the planet and so on and so forth. They only have two conditions. One, we have to give up all of our nuclear weapons. And two, we need to take care of the earth, meaning the, the you know, climate uh, change agenda of the United Nations, UN Agenda 2030, that for sustainable development, we need to deindustrialize the planet, all right, and emphasize ecology and so on and so forth. I have something to say in respect to that, okay? Number one. Since the 1950s, again, I detail this in Closer Encounters. Since the 1950s, these contactees were telling us that Nordics were demanding that we give up our nuclear weapons, that they were obsessed with this, that these Nordics, they kept telling these contactees, you got to get rid of these nuclear weapons. You know, they're a menace to the environment in particular. And they had this agenda of, we need to save the earth from the destructiveness of humanity, so on and so forth. Okay, number one. The reason why they're doing this is because our nuclear weapons are our only defense against them. Remember, I talked about insurgency earlier, right? Insurgencies, right? I mean, like in Palestine, I don't know, in, in the Palestinian occupied territory, whatever. I don't even know what to, what to call it. <laughs> I mean, I'm a big supporter of the state of Israel, just by the way. And I really couldn't care less about the Palestinian cause, just to put that on record. But in, in these territories, you know, the Palestinians throw rocks at the Israeli soldiers and you know, that can be effective. I mean, if a rock hits you here, you know, you're kind of fucked. Yeah. So even though these Israelis have machine guns, rock throwers are a problem. Well, nuclear weapons are a hell of a rock to throw, okay? In an insurgency scenario where we're, we have to actually fight these entities and try to free ourselves from their, you know, uh, full spectrum dominance of the planet, there's one weapon that we have, which used in large enough numbers will defeat them. If, if anything, it will defeat them because it will end life on this planet. And they cannot afford for that to happen, you see. We have a huge bargaining chip ourselves. 
You know, oh, when someone is yeah. taken hostage, when someone is taken hostage and they prefer death to continuing to be a hostage or continuing to be a slave. Like a Masada. Yeah, exactly. So look, give me liberty or give me death. The reason why Reagan and Gorbachev both agreed not to get rid of the whole nuclear arsenal of the United States and, and the Soviet Union when they were negotiating disarmament is because secretly they both agreed that our only and last defense against these entities is our nuclear arsenal, our combined nuclear arsenal. So number one, what they're trying to do is take away our best defense and our only defense against them. And number two, this stuff about climate change and be, you know, preserve the earth by deindustrializing is a load of crap. The way to save the earth is to push through the technological singularity because all of these technologies, uh, like nanotechnology, for example, are going to be able to number one, develop methods of industrial production that are entirely clean, and number two, clean up the environment from the devastation that we have already caused. And not to mention, of course, zero-point energy itself, which can replace coal, can replace nuclear, etc. And so the best way to have a, you know, uh, to preserve the um, biosphere of the earth, to have an ecological society, is to actually go through the technological singularity. Mm -hmm. Right. And but no, they don't want that. They want to convince us that we need to be industrialized, because if we go through the technological singularity, we achieve technological parity with them, which means, again, we can defend ourselves. Quick, so uh, quick follow up question to that. If we're talking about this battle, one of the things you mentioned earlier is that they're also very concerned about humans developing psi abilities. But what I don't understand is surely these entities with all the experience they have are so psycho, uh, you know, psycho whatever advanced that they could just, you know, brainwash people into, you know, uh, uh, doing whatever. At least that's the impression that I get. No, but again, no, I... it's not that. No, it's not that simple at all. It's not that simple at all. Okay, I mean, it, look. First of all, sadly, they've brainwashed the majority of humanity. They've brainwashed. They have successfully brainwashed. You know, I mean, I I, I don't even want to give numbers. There's it's so it's so depressing. Yeah. But you just look at the various ideologies that are dominant on this planet from Judeo-Christianity to Islam to Confucianism to Hinduism, and you can draw your own conclusion about what percentage of humanity they have successfully brainwashed. But there are always people who are very resistant to manipulation, people who are difficult to hypnotize and difficult to manipulate psychically. We, certain strong-minded individuals and free spirits, have a very powerful psychic defense field of their own, uh, subconsciously. And it's not easy to manipulate those people. Mm, very interesting. Okay, so we're going to ask case because otherwise yeah. I would be fucked personally. We'd all be. <laughs> no, I, I, I know what you mean, uh, Jason. All right, we are going to go to the other super chat here from the Shimmer Trap. $10. Greetings from DC. Wink emoji. I wonder what that's about. Uh, can you delve into China and their agreements with the Nordics? And arguably, why haven't Nordics reverted us back to agrarian society if they have superior technology already? Answer to part two first, because they're not the only game in town. As I said, there's a struggle here between at least two very powerful uh, groups of entities or two, um, two forces. Uh, you know, the ancient uh, Iranian philosopher, who I was going to say prophet, but really he was the first philosopher, Zarathustra, 
conceptualize this as the struggle between sepantominu, the progressive mentality, and the counterforce of angraminu, or the constraining, retarding mentality. And there are entities that represent both sides in this struggle. And so that's one of the reasons why they haven't succeeded in regressing us uh, to a, a uh, you know, neo-agrarian society. But in terms of the Chinese and the Nordics, I've spoken about this you know, at length before, so I'll keep it short. The Chinese are spearheading humanity's return to the moon. The United States is only going back to the moon, sadly, because the Chinese have a plan to do so. Wow. And so, yeah, well, I mean, our project Artemis, we're playing catch up with the Chinese, and they're very likely to land on the moon first. Wow. And if the Chinese have decided to go to the moon, knowing what happened to the Apollo astronauts, because the Russians are working with the Chinese on the moon, they plan to go there together, then the Chinese have clearly made an agreement with the Nordics, because the Chinese know full well that when the Apollo astronauts went up there, they were warned off the moon by these Nordics, and they're not about to let that happen to them. Humiliation is the worst thing in Chinese Confucian culture. Right. So it means they've made arrangements in advance to guarantee their success. Uh, and there's no way for them to have done that other than that they came to some agreement with the Nordics, which is horrifying because, <laughs> you know, what is it exactly that they've agreed to do? Uh, probably to act as viceroys in the deindustrialization of the planet and the establishment of a traditionalist belief system worldwide, which fits with their collectivist, hierarchical Confucian mentality. I guess that means they're going to go back to uh, just uh, farming rice and all those fancy buildings that they're uh, constructing right now don't really have that much of a future. On that view, if that, if that future is allowed to unfold, cities won't have much of a future, no matter where they're located. It's a future where cities are abandoned and people live in homesteads in the countryside again. Hmm. We have Caden Brown, $6, no questions, just wanted to thank you all for the discussion. Thank you, Caden. And uh, I want to take a question for you then, which is, uh, just so I don't forget, why can't in the scenario that the Earth blows up, these Nordics just say, all right, let's go back into the time machine, let's go, you know, because we didn't talk about time travel. I mean, that would be like oh, a whole man. episode all of its own. But if there is any way that you could answer that, because that's kind of a, that would be a solution to that problem, wouldn't it? For the Nordics, just take the time machine back. Who cares? We'll, we'll, we'll try again. How do you know that hasn't already happened? Right. We could be in, in, in wrinkles and wrinkles and wrinkles of these loops. Oh, listen, I wrote about this in Faustian Futurist. I've written some fiction, you know, in, in one of my sci-fi novels. Faust Actually, in both Faustian Futurist and its sequel, Uberman, I wrote about this twice. The scenario where there was a nuclear war and the timeline was reset after it. Um, but to go back to Grush, which was a starting point of our whole conversation, mm -hmm. one of the things that I found most impressive about his testimony uh, you know, with the physics background that he has, is how in this interview with Coldheart, he tried to explain uh, as part of a defense for calling for not calling them alien or extraterrestrial. He tried to explain how the UFO technology has a hyper-dimensional relationship to 4D space-time. That the what UFOs do is they are capable of extricating you from 4D, the 4D timeline and treating space-time in topological terms. In other words, time is treated as if it were space. And you can get out of one epoch and re-enter the timeline in another epoch 
as if you're navigating 4D through a fifth dimensional hyperspace. And so Grush actually mentions this, you know, in as brief, a, you know, in, in, in the contracted form that the interview allowed for. But I found that rather impressive. And of course, it fits his physics background. And, you know, I mean, this is stuff that, you know, I discuss, I have a whole chapter on time travel and hyperdimensional physics in this uh, book. Excellent. So let us go to the other super chat over here. And by the way, if you guys have not added a like, adding a like, clicking the like button, it's extremely important to the algorithm. I mean, Jason will tell you, you know, like that it's always a fight against the YouTube algorithm over here. So uh, we have uh, Batuhan Erdogan uh, for, with 55 tries. I wonder what that is. I think it's like $2 something cents. But uh, what country is a try from? A try is Turkish lira. Ah, there we go. Uh, from uh, from Turkey. So, uh, well, Erdogan, obviously, right? Shout out to Ostad Georgiani. I wonder what Ostad means. Uh, Greer's guests. Talk it means to... maestro in Persian. Ah, the maestro. Excellent. Uh, Greer's guests talked about UFO slave trade in Indonesia and a potential earthquake machine in Antarctica today. Comments. Wow. Um, uh, sadly, I think they're both true. And, uh, that's why I'm, I'm saying, look, uh, look, I've talked about the earthquake machines before I wrote, I wrote about them in, um, well, more than one book in a fictional context in Faustian futurist, I talk about them. And I think in, in Prometheism, in my book, Prometheism, which launched, you know, the Prometheus movement, I expressed concern that these tectonic weapons would be used in the third world war. That, you know, as we move into the Third World War, you see Taiwan is being evacuated right now, by the way, folks. Taiwan is being evacuated right now. Wow. Americans are being evacuated from Taiwan right now. So as we move into the Third World War, don't be surprised if we suddenly have a lot of earthquakes <laughs> and tsunamis attendant to them. Those are tectonic weapons that are going to be used by all sides, by us, by the Russians, etc. So these things exist. And so, yeah, that part of that, I watched the Greer testimony and I saw that, uh, that whistleblower um, uh, basically described this tectonic weapon located in Antarctica that had the capacity to project earthquakes in different parts of the planet. And sadly, yes, those things exist. And I also think the slave trade thing that he testified to witnessing this human trafficking is real. And that's why, again, I repeat, to the people who are behind Grush. You all are going to find yourselves hanging from a noose and in front of firing squads. Unless you get serious about the roadmap toward a new form of sociopolitical organization, at least in the Anglosphere. And the most fundamental level of that kind of socio-political reorganization is the ethos upon which you intend for our civilization to be based forward into the future, okay? And I'm telling you right now, you will not be able to save yourselves unless you can define that aim or end meaningfully enough for at least some thinking and conscientious portion of the population 
who is going to basically, uh, let's say, carve out some place for you in, in this new order, right? I mean, otherwise, look, you're going to be prosecuted together with the people responsible for that slave trade. You won't be able to offer the classic SS defense. I was just following orders mm. and think that somehow you're going to escape the wrath of the masses, okay, by uh, deflecting blame and responsibility to your superiors. Hmm. Hmm. Very interesting. So the next uh, super chat over here is actually not a super chat, but it is a uh, donation from Payman Ferdosali, 1999. Thank you so much for the super chat without a comment. I uh, really appreciate it. And uh, just so you guys know, by the way, I want to do live events. I want to do live Break the Rules events in Manhattan. Everybody's welcome. I would love to have uh, Jason, Neil, all the uh, brilliant people come in. But in order to fund a lot of these live events, you need to have money, which is why the Super Chats and Patreon.com are going to be going towards the establishment of these live events. Here is the Patreon.com slash Break the Rules link in the chat. Be sure to click that, and you're also going to get a lot of wonderful artistic things. Like, uh, Jason, I know you're a big fan of... Uh, art in general, surrealist art, and my father Alexander is an amazing artist who does these very beautiful magnets. So if you want to have something that was made with a lot of love, made out of high quality wood, for $20 patronage, these magnets could be yours. You can see like this isn't BS. This is like very beautiful, exquisite stuff that's made from the heart of a really uh, good person. So there you go. And now we are going to go to the next super chat, which is uh, you said yes. before we go to the next super chat, just real quickly. Sure. Magnets and it reminded me. Okay. All right. Magnets. So, okay. I know this is going to be hard to believe, but one of the reasons why I uh, stuck my neck out as far as I did in closer encounters regarding time travel and this whole question of resets of the timeline and all this is because I was told by someone who had been to one of these facilities that Grush is talking about, one of these deep underground facilities belonging to one of the defense contractors. Let's just say Lockheed, okay? And, uh, and he had been there and they were training pilots to fly. I don't know whether it was the recovered vehicles or whether it was reverse engineered vehicles, ARVs, you know, that they were building themselves. They were training them to fly these things. And the biggest problem they had was that this zero point energy drive would cause spatiotemporal distortion. So it's not like these just, they navigate space, they warp time. And so the pilots were experiencing extreme disorientation. Wow. And they were trying to figure out how do we, how is the uh, geometry of spatial navigation correlated to time dilation? And they had developed this whole contraption which had dimension, it was like a, a, gy a gyroscope. And it had certain dimensions of space and certain dimensions of time. And they were interlinked with each other to show you like how much you move in time depending on navigation through space in a certain way. Whoa. And they were trying to get these pilots to wrap their minds around this so they wouldn't be completely mind fucked uh, in the cockpit of these vehicles. So, so point being like, and I, I, I trust this individual, this huge salt of the earth person uh, who told me that he had witnessed this and Anyway, I'm not going to say more than that, but uh, being, this, this dovetails with what Grush was saying himself about, uh, you know, navigate hyperdimensional physics and 
the way in which these objects can traverse the timeline and not just navigate space. And we have a super chat again from Ubu, who, by the way, Ubu is currently king or queen of the super chats. And you can see the name over there on the screen. So thank you, Ubu. Insiders mention the year 2027. Any idea as to why, Dr. Giorgiani? Yeah, because it's when the Third World War ends. I mean, well, it's when the Third World War will wind up toward a conclusion. I think that between 2025 and 2028, we're going to have hell on earth. And things will take a big turn in 2027. I've said this before. I'll repeat it. I believe that France in 2027 is going to break with the Western alliance and make a separate peace with Russia and by extension with China, and that France will be instrumental in 2027 in basically um, negotiating the formation of a new world order uh, under the flag of, sadly, the United Nations. Hmm. And, um, and so that's why I think 2027 is, is very significant. A flag that I believe Stanley Kubrick was also alluding to in the documentary that I saw. But anyway, uh, we have another one from Uwu, $5. What can we do at the moment of death to evade the Archons and avoid the memory wipe and forced reincarnation? Is there a way out of the soul trap? Uh, yeah, by cultivating your personal agency and maintaining your focus and knowing what it is you want moving forward from the moment of death. But let me use that a question just as an opportunity to highlight another, another uh, aspect of the horrendously unethical behavior of these entities, which Grush is alluding to when he says that when you look at it from a humanistic perspective, a lot of their behavior is negative, even male malevolent. And that's this psychotronic manipulation. These Nordics have the capacity to reach into the post-mortem state the afterlife, as it were, the transition between death and rebirth, and to manipulate your experiences in that state. And, you know, the, the really stellar case in this regard is that of Betty Andreessen. People should look into the Andreessen affair that was studied by Raymond Fowler. Um, it's an excellent example of how these Nordics are the angels behind, you know, this experience of going into the light and, you know, meeting your dead relatives or meeting Jesus Christ and all this bullshit. Uh, it is psychotronic manipulation. And I mean, it, that, that makes the abductions look, you know, tame by comparison, right? I mean, it's one thing to abduct somebody's body during their lifetime. It's another thing to abduct somebody's soul and manipulate it after they're dead. I mean, that's horrendous. It's spiritual slavery that we've been subjected to. And so again, you know, uh, we have a very small window to organize some form of resistance and to salvage the ideals of the American Revolution, you know, to, to, to march under the banner of give me liberty or give me death. Next super chat over here is from Quest on Channel. $2. When will we get official Promethean merch? It depends on a number of factors. We'll, we'll have to see. Be patient. I mean, there's some behind you, but that's uh, yours. That's not really for. Uh... Yeah, there's a, there's a few individuals who have proprietary merch thus yeah, far. Like the, the oh, can I make a plug real, real plug real quick? Yes, sir. I, I did start a second channel called Gnostic Informant TV, where I'm uploading compilations, shorts, basically highlights, stuff like that. And I put together the first full length 
full length documentary. It's a seven hour video of the three the three interviews that uh, Dr. Georgiani and I did. And I put it together in a way where it, it, it is now in a feature length. It, it, I put it together. I, I chopped it up a little bit and made it so it's 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 literally a masterpiece now. People wow. are loving it. it. It's it's getting watched a lot. So yeah, folks, please check out Neil's channel, Gnostic mm. Informant. It is the best show having to do with theology and comparative religion. Thank and you. It, mm. you know, it's been a real pleasure to, to be his guest. Yeah. And uh, Neil, you've gone through such a strange journey. You are not one of those people that was uh, brought up into being like the serious academic scholar or something. And no. again, when I see things like that and the connection that the three of us were able to make, I definitely think that there are some very strange things going on here. Because, you know, this, is, this isn't supposed to be like that. You know, this isn't it's part of the program. Trickster. That's <laughs> yes. the at work. Exactly. Yes. Exacto mundo. All right. Uh, next over here, we have Doc Fortune, $5. Uh, what does the average person need to do in the months and years to come? Number one, cultivate your ethos. Okay. Build a spiritual backbone and not based on some retarded ideology. Okay. <laughs> uh, cultivate your conscience and your personal sense of meaning and purpose in life, number one, okay? Cultivate your ethos. Number two, buy gold. Number three, buy guns. Number four, find a defensible piece of property. Nice. Preferably one that has access to well water from beneath. That's, that, would uh... be nice. that, would be, that would be preferable. You don't want to have to go loot other people's water. Mm hmm. Sam Fisher, uh, six ninety nine Canadian dollars. Jason, can you share any brief thoughts you might have on quantum computing? <laughs> I don't know if brief and quantum computing go together, but uh, I know I'll give it a shot, I guess. This is also at the core of the book that I'm writing right now, the, the project that I've begun. Um, we live in a quantum computational cosmos. And consciousness plays an integral role in it, right? I mean, consciousness, you know, is inextricable from the collapse of the wave function. I reject the many worlds interpretation, the, the Everett interpretation, because it's fundamentally uh, contradictory to our having any free will or, or personal agency. And there's no evidence for it. And so I think that that's a, a, uh, a ridiculously expensive theory. And I'm with the early people like Nellis Bohr and, and Wolfgang Pauli and so forth who believed that consciousness is really what collapses the wave function. So that if you conceive of us living in a quantum computational cosmos, a kind of holographic universe, consciousness is inextricable from the manifestation of phenomena. And that becomes very interesting when you then start to think about artificial intelligence and quantum artificial intelligence as part of a quantum computational system. Okay, um, so let me leave it at that for now, but give you a promissory note that it's at the heart of my current project. Nice. And uh, finally, we have over here, uh, I don't know if finally I'm going to check over here to see if there's any more, but Lawrence, 20 Canadian dollars. I've long suspected that these so-called wildfires are being intentionally started and evidence is beginning to mount. Thoughts on how these orchestrated attacks fit into the larger context of your discussion? 
Well, look, I mean, if if you want to suppose that the fires have been somehow either deliberately orchestrated or augmented, then again, we're talking about like scalar weaponry, um, you know, weather weapons, things like that. Okay. I mean, HARP can also do that. It can probably concentrate energy in a way that would catalyze a or, or intensify a forest fire. Um, and who would be responsible for something like that in Canada? Well, I mean, either the Russians or the Chinese um, as a way to warn the United States of what the consequences would be through an intensification of either the war in Ukraine or opposition to China and the Taiwan Straits. Mm. And now, I can tell you, it was, if that's the case, it was a very effective demonstration because uh, you should have seen New York during the, <laughs> that couple of days. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it was something. Uh, oh, indeed. Yeah. And you, if we had to live with a week of that in New York, it really was only bad for one or two days. If we had to live with a week of that in New York, that would be a catastrophe. One other interesting thing of note there is that I was doing these comparisons when I was superimposing the pattern of lightning to the pattern of the uh, heat signatures. I would not necessarily say that it matched up like people were saying, number one. Number two, I'd be very interested if any of you guys are out there who are meteorologists, I'd be very interested to know what exactly are the historical highs for the amount of lightning strikes, even in the dry condition that they say was present within the Quebec area? What is the historical highest amount of fires that would be set in that kind of area? You know, maybe this is completely, you know, uh, kosher, but I want to see that data. And frankly, nobody seems curious to provide that kind of data. But anyway, uh, be that as it may, I think that is the last of the Super Chats. I am just going to scroll up here to make sure. But once again, if you guys are enjoying this program, make sure you leave a like, make sure you subscribe and click the bell. These ones, for some reason, didn't seem to come in, but I see them here. Chester, pair character jumping up and down and saying number one fan. That may be an animation that was sent. So I appreciate it, Chester. Nice. Yeah, Chester the pair man. Another one here from DIY Craft Q. Pair character listen, lifting. Listen, don't discount Chester the pair man. <laughs> Chester is, is uh, he's a very interesting, very interesting character. And... Um, you know, a uh, quite a force from behind the curtain and from in the shadows. Chester is uh, the magical crow of our movement. So, well, Chester, man, you know, I, I'm yeah. in deep debt to you, my friend. <laughs> Awesome. Well, I really appreciate it. Another one here from a DIY Craft Q. Pair character lifting some weights saying, keep it up. There we go. That may also be either Chester or a friend of his. But yeah, these are all the super chats. So guys, this is it. Thank you so much for watching. A couple of plugs, by the way. First, uh, uh, Neil, Gnostic Informant, yep. one of the greatest uh, modern scholars of the ancient world of all time that is not an exaggeration when i turn his stuff on i just listen to it on uh, you know what while i'm driving and i just like you know I, I gotta concentrate on the road otherwise i might as well hit something because of how fascinating this dude is so i'm more, uh, more of a wanderer for truth than a scholar but it's okay you can call me that so where can people find you gnostic informant type it in at youtube.com slash gnostic informant but i also want to make clear i make an, i have another channel that's out now Gnostic Informant TV, that's growing really fast. In fact, that that documentary I was just mentioning, seven-hour-long documentary, something to put on before you go to sleep to watch and doze off to, uh, that already has 20,000 views in two days. 
Oh, uh, unbelievable, man. People, people are loving that 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 uh, conversation we had. So we'll, they're definitely have to set, uh, set up some more of those in the future. Atlantis. Excellent. Atlantis. Yeah, they are here going to McLovin that, that so much. Anyway, uh, Jason Reza Giorgiani, Dr. Jason Reza Giorgiani, PhD. Where could people find you? What is the easiest place other than in the description where there is a link, by the way, to uh, your book? But where else could people find you? I would go to my YouTube channel. What I update most often is probably <clears throat> my YouTube channel. And, you know, I'm on social media, Twitter, uh, Twitter. Who knows? Forget Facebook. Don't go to Facebook. <laughs> Twitter. Uh, Instagram. Um, but yeah, my YouTube channel, is there a link in the description to my, YouTube there channel? is absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah, click, yeah, just click Prometheism. Channel. Yes. And, uh, finally guys, be sure to check uh, me out at Lovepo on Twitter. And also I have a Substack, uh, Be sure to check that out. I just had a new article that I wrote today. I don't know if you guys will agree with it, disagree with it, but it would definitely took a lot of uh, research into, uh, getting the nitty gritty of it. So be sure it's about Tucker Carlson. Be sure to check that out. And also patreon.com slash break the rules. Once again, be sure to go there. And for all of you, uh, crazy people who are on discord, there is a break the rules discord and the link i'm sending right here right now this is the discord link it is in the chat so be sure to go there join the community and uh yeah i don't know instagram <laughs> instagram.com slash left polyakov go there and uh yeah follow me on instagram and since you're probably going to be real people i'll know which one of you saw this you know with your instagram profile following me all of a sudden so guys thank you so much for watching I am such a big fan of having you guys on and be sure to check out this Thursday, 3 p.m. Eastern when we are having Ben Avery, formerly of the Tim Dillon show and now of Lemon Party together with Uber Boyo. We are going to be talking about Carl Jung and I really want to find out about that whole Ichi thing that you were talking about, Neil, and uh, that's going to be that's going to be a lot of fun. So guys, without further ado, thank you so much. Take care. Have a good night. I wish everybody the best.